Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. Sound of Silence, probably not the version you're used to, but one by somebody called Dami M. That is the Seventh Heaven Radio edit, and it's from a 2016 EP, The Sound of Silence Remixes, available on Apple Music. And I just think, this is two months in a row, but I just like the peppy song to get us going. Blood pumping, heart pounding, dance music, you know? And I think it's appropriate because, you know, with silent films, which we're going to be talking about today... There's always more than one track. There's always more than one oh, yeah. version to, to listen to. And that can, as we will talk about, impact your viewing experience one way or the other. Music with silent film makes or breaks it. I've said before, I saw a version of Nosferatu a few years ago that had a very goofy, fast soundtrack. And it made the movie into a comedy and people were laughing and I had to walk out about halfway through because it's like, this is not anywhere close to what music should be playing. Yeah. So that's perfect. Yep. Absolutely good start. Well, we're jumping a gun a little bit, but I think it's pretty obvious what we're going to talk about. This episode, we're back to normal. We're going to get back to our routine, to our format. So let's start by welcoming everybody. Welcome to episode 51 of the Classic Horse Club podcast. Welcome to those of you watching on YouTube. We are definitely glad to have you. I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from Kansas City Cinephile and Monster Movie Kid. That would be KCCinephile.com and MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. Perhaps the thing I'm most excited about going back to the format is the gavel, so we can call the meeting to order. Do we need to tell people any more about what we're going to be talking about today? Obviously, silent movies, you mentioned that. Since we're going back to format, we thought, wouldn't it be fun if we went almost back to the beginning, right? We, uh, we're going to be covering three silent films, a couple of which are close to 100 years old, one of which is 100 years old. We are going to be talking about The Golem, German version that was released on October 29th, 1920. We're going to be talking about The Phantom Carriage from 1921 and The Man Who Laughs from 1928. Richard. I misunderstood. I watched the Limehouse Golem. 
you watched it a lot quicker than I did. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. I, I actually, when I was researching, I was like, is that movie in any way related to the goal? Well, no, it's not really. They they use that name, but yeah, yeah, okay, fine. Yeah, I'm glad you finally watched it. <laughs> I did not. What I think is interesting about these choices is, and you mentioned it last time, we're not doing the main, you know, ones that everyone has seen, Nosferatu, Phantom of the Opera, like that. I also think what's interesting, we didn't watch any with Lon Chaney Sr. Yeah, Perhaps I mean... We're saving that maybe for an episode about him in the future. You know, we could certainly do a Lon Chaney uh, senior month. We, it's on our list that we've talked about. And we could do it without covering The Hunchback of oh, Notre yeah. Dame and Phantom of the Opera because he did have a few others in the mid to late 20s, and including his very last film as one and only sound film, The Unholy Three from 1930. He did two versions of that, one silent and one sound. We will be doing a Lon Chaney Senior month at some point down the road. You know, we certainly did his son, so we've got to do dad. The other thing I think is interesting is we chose three different parts of the decade of the 20s. And I think with these movies, you can really see how filmmaking in general was progressing. So I want to talk about that. I want to talk about music. You mentioned that. Um, there's definitely a lot to talk about these three films. And I found that there's there's an interesting kind of theme that ended up happening over all three films. And it wasn't even something I was aware of or thought about when we started throwing out suggestions. Similarities between all three films, you may or may not be aware of these. You've done some research as well. But as I was doing research and as I was watching these, it was interesting, you know, over the course of, of these three random films, the similarities between the three films and, and comparisons to other films. Hmm. Can't wait for that. I don't believe I know what you're talking about. Before we get to that, let's do some old business. We do have a new member in the Facebook group page. Let's welcome Trent Lewis, and you can join Trent and our other members on Facebook just by uh, asking to join the, the club. Yeah, exactly. Welcome to the club. We also have some feedback. We got an email. It comes from Doug Fasson Frank. He said, hello, congratulations on your 50th show. He wanted to add two titles to the list of reference books that we talked about a couple episodes ago. One is The Films of Boris Karloff by Richard Bojarski and Heroes of the Horrors by Calvin Thomas Beck. I have that Boris Karloff book. Absolutely. I may as well. I, I can pull it off my shelf here really quickly. Got an awesome cover. Oh, no, that's not the one I'm talking about. I was talking about Karloff and Company, the horror film. Well, there are so many good Karloff books. This one is in a format, when they used to do those films of books, films of various different actors, I've got several different ones on my shelf here, where essentially they basically just go in chronological orders, like the, you know, 1934, the Black Cat, they list credits, the cast, there's a synopsis, you get some pictures. And then you get a little bit of background about the film and, and a review thrown in. I, in fact, I remember when I got this book, uh, I got it off of eBay. I paid next to nothing for it. The guy actually lived in Wichita. So I actually drove to his house and knocked on the door and he had the money. He saved on shipping and basically he opened his screen door, slid it through. I took it and, <laughs> and it was an easy transaction. I remember reading it as a kid at the library. Hmm. And so there were several books 
from that era that I would always read in the library and uh, I had picked up over the years. So fun book. Interesting. Yeah. I'm not familiar with that or with the other one. Are you familiar with Heroes of the Horrors? I am not familiar with that one. No, that's a new one. I'm looking up the image right now to see if it looks familiar. And so this is a perfect example is like, is there anything in this book that you can't find in the internet? No, but having it in your hands and, and just being able to, to peruse the pictures and to just read some of the reviews, which again, you could probably find online, having it all in one spot and just having it on yourself. And you know what, when the internet goes out, you got that book and you'll be able to go back to it. When I did my Boris Karloff series for my blog quite a few years ago now, I think what, 2014, 2015, I had this book and I used this book as I went through. In fact, I even stole the image of the cover and used that on my daily posts. When I did my 31 days of Halloween that year, it was on Boris Karloff. This book was one of my references. Yeah, I see Heroes of Horror here. It's a black and white cover with some floating heads. Uh, I'll um, put it on the YouTube show. Awesome. Awesome. Can't really show it on the podcast. But now we have a voicemail from our friend Bill Myers, who participated in our 50th Halloween extravaganza last episode. Uh, Let's hear what Bill has to say. Hello, my Jeff. Hello, my Rich. It's your boy, Bill Mize, from the Bill Watches Movies podcast and the upcoming Monsters by the Minute podcast. I just wanted to drop you a quick note to first congratulate you again on celebrating your 50-show milestone. You are to be commended, congratulated, and just generally huzzahed for this feat of podcasting continuity and excellence. So, well done, you too. Second, thank you so much for allowing me to make my first podcasting appearance on a show other than my own and participate in the festivities. My Snickers bars made it all the way to Florida from Minneapolis, so I thank you for that as well. Just so you know, due to my extreme delusional popularity and demand, my price for episode 100 will be a large Toblerone, so start planning now. All jokes aside, I think you guys have a wonderful show, and I love the creativity and heart behind your episodes. I love that you have expanded into YouTube, and I encourage all your listeners to investigate that and get them some more classic horror club goodness between episodes. Thank you again, my friends. I wish you both all the best, and I look forward to seeing what the next year has in store for you. I am sure it is nothing but happiness and success. I'll talk to you later. And to quote Sergeant Esterhouse, let's be careful out there. Thank you, Bill. I mean, I was expecting for some reason this, this you know, 15, 20 minute feedback. Uh, <laughs> so that was short, but it was sweet and it was incredibly nice. We were so thankful to have all of our guests on the show and thankful that they all were able to contribute and, and all had fun and yeah, I'm excited to hear, you know, what Bill's got coming up as he's as his next podcast. Wasn't content, right? He wanted to tweak. He wanted to really dive into what uh, people wanted to listen to. I think that's one, one interesting thing about Bill is that he did a lot of research before he launched his podcast. He came out of the gate with top-notch sound quality and production and very into 
feedback and ratings and and hits and all the behind the scenes stuff is like what makes a podcast successful and wanting to take it to the next level. I think it's going to be fun what he's got coming up. I'm looking forward to it. If I could only get caught up on my podcast, I could I could guarantee that that would be something I'd listen to sooner than later, but it'll be added to the list. And he also I think just upgraded his website. There were a couple posts yesterday. I have been off the world of Facebook for the last week, but Carla will occasionally point stuff out. And she did yesterday say, hey, and she showed me the post. The rule is like she'll show it. If she shows it to me, I can read the post real quick. I just can't go comment. I I imposed an an eight-day break from Facebook and social media post-Halloween, mostly because it was coming upon election week. And I'd said, you know what? I'm just going to hide in my little hidey hole for a week. By the time this podcast comes out, I will be back on the world of Facebook. But I don't understand. You look happy and healthy and normal, and you were able to do that being off of Facebook? I was able to survive this past week. Wow. I had been taking Sundays off for a while, and I didn't. Obviously, I kind of got out of that in September, and I didn't because of Halloween and getting on every day. And so I'm going to go back to that. I think it's healthy to to just shut, tune out for at least one day out of the week. I actually really enjoyed the the purge of <laughs> social media. I don't want to do away with it completely because I like connecting with like-minded individuals, but you know, tuning out for a day out of the week is, is something good. And I will, I'm going to get back to that. I encourage everybody to tune out every once in a while and just take a breather because there's a lot of good on social media. There's a lot of noise and you know what? Tune out the noise every once in a while, pick up a book, listen to some music, listen to a podcast. Doug was able to email his feedback at classichorrors.club at gmail.com. And Bill was able to call in his feedback at 616-649-2582. Easy way to remember that, Rich, 616-649. Club! (laughs) That didn't used to be in the original format, you know, so... um, I know. I, 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 I'm gonna have now that we've got video. I feel like I've got to do like uh, what's the the Michigan Frog thing from uh, Warner Brothers. I got to bring a top hat or something. See what I can I can add so I can just having the voice isn't enough. It's enough. Any other other old business before we take a break? I think we're good. You know that we the last couple of episodes have been definitely very non format, and I think we covered everything. And I'm ready to dive back in and and. Go back a hundred years to the world of 1920. Well, that sounds good then. We'll take the break and come back and talk about the Gollum.
when Rabbi Lowe foresees in the stars the disaster will soon befall the Jews, he brings to life an ancient stone statue to protect them. The Golem, from 1920, is a German film written by Henrik Galeen and Paul Wegener, directed by Paul Wegener. During that break, I asked Richard if it was Golem or Gollum, uh, so I mispronounced it. I think, I think you can say it either way. I've heard it pronounced both ways. The golem seems to be the one that's more common, but, you know, tomato, tomato. You golem. can say it both ways. I did and you did. Two different Well, exactly. Exactly. And you know what? It's a silent film, so does it really matter? Oh, right, right. Well, we'll try to be consistent. And, and yes. Rich, you are the silent film person. I know you've prepared a lot of information, history, when it becomes appropriate for me to chime in with my opinion, I shall do that. For the sake of those watching at home, <laughs> I, I put on the glasses oh. now. Yes. For starters, I, I think we have to say that, you know, with all three of these films, there's going to be multiple ways that you can watch the movie, especially the first two, uh, The Golem and The Phantom Carriage. They're both available on YouTube. The Man Who Laughs is not. Music is important and picture quality is important. We live in an age where we're getting upgrades to public domain prints and that can greatly enhance your pleasure in a film. Plus, oftentimes you, the newer versions of these films coming out are more complete and they have color tinting, better soundtracks. I mean, all of that can really make these films night and day compared to, to what's been available for so many years. The Golem is a perfect example. It's a public domain film. It's been available in the public domain for many years. My DVD that I have of this is an alpha video DVD from 20 years ago. I would never watch it again, to be honest with you, because the prints that are available now are much better. Kino Classics has been the company that released the most recent Blu-ray, which I think is probably even a little better than what's available on YouTube. The YouTube version is infinitely better than my DVD copy because it's sharper, it's clearer, you can see the characters better. You've got the color tinting, which is where, if you're not familiar with that, essentially if it's a night scene, Typically, they go to blue. If there's fire, they'll tint it red. If there's maybe romance happening, maybe they'll tint it more of a pinkish color. All, you know, yellows, blues, greens, a wide variety of shades. It's not like a color sequence that's been hand-painted like in Phantom of the Opera. It certainly had some of those. This is where the entire image is just blue or green. I find that that really enhances the presentation. The version that you and I both watched of, of The Golem, we watched the, the YouTube version. And I think that that's probably the way to go unless you want to buy the Kino Classics Blu-ray. From what I understand, the image is a little sharper on the Blu-ray and the color tinting is adjusted a little bit. So it's not quite as harsh because there were some scenes where the color tinting kind of washed things out a little bit. Again, so much better than the the really rough, bad public domain print that I had from Alpha Video. There's no reason to watch that. There's no reason to buy that. There's no reason to watch a bad version of the Golem when you can get 
good version for free on YouTube or spend $20 for the, the Kino Classics Blu-ray because it's going to greatly improve your overall viewing experience. From what I understand, the Golem, if you watch this version on YouTube, I thought the music was, for the most part, good. There was a few sequences in some scenes where the music they chose, it was supposed to be, it was almost saying... <laughs> Carla pointed it out, and when she did, I could not unhear it. But there was like, it was, I kind of took it as kind of like Indian music a little bit, Indian as in India. But then there was like a few segments she said, This sounds like I'm watching an, an old Western, and they're rounding up the wagons in a circle. And all of a sudden, I was like, Yeah, yeah, it does kind of like just the way some of the beats were. And that's the thing with music is sometimes if the music isn't a hundred percent appropriate with what's going on the screen, it can take you out of the moment. And once I heard that and it popped up a few other times, that's the first thing I thought of is like old cowboys and Indian movies from the thirties, forties, they're rounding up the wagons in a circle. Yeah. It's important as well that the music does go with the scenes. There's a lot of silent films where they just throw a soundtrack. The music may be good. It may be, classical orchestral but if it doesn't go with the scene that you're watching it can take you out of the moment and it can as we mentioned with Nosferatu it can change a, a horror film to a comedy if the music's not appropriate. I have a question before we get too far <clears throat> obviously we're not watching the original product that would be impossible at this point yeah so you see different versions some might have tinting some may have different music what are we really talking about here it, we're not really reviewing or looking at a film so much as a package of a film. Yeah. And we could be talking about one version of the Gollum and another, and it could be two entirely different things. Do we have any base ground or any standards, you know, we're going to use? Are, are we just going to focus on the specific version we watched? I think, I think you know, we, we, we have to go with the specific version that we watched. A case in point, when we get to The Man Who Laughs, I think you, you and I watched two different versions. And so I think we can talk about with that particular film, there is two different versions, three technically versions out there. Because I think there's other another orchestral score that was that was previously used. Yeah, if we've seen more than one, I mean, we can we can kind of do a compare and contrast you can only go with the one that you've seen. I think it's important, you know, to as well, especially with the Golem is to pay attention to running time too, because there's versions out there that are like an hour, little over an hour. They've been hacked and condensed and stuff. 85 minutes is seems to be the, the average running time of this film now. And I don't think that that's complete. I think that there are still scenes that have been, they're missing over time. Silent films, it is so hard to say that we're watching what they watched, you know, originally. Man Who Laughs, when you get to the late 20s, it's it's a little more acceptable that what we're watching is what was originally released to theaters. And with some films, like, for example, Charlie Chaplin films, he would write the score for many of his films. And by the time you get to the 1920s, the music that's usually accompanying those are Charlie Chaplin's score. Even though there may be, I mean, it's harder to find different versions from the, some of those films because Chaplin, you know, or, or there's certain estates that retain the rights and is like, this is the music that goes with this. 
But other films like The Golem, which is public domain, people will just, I've seen back in the days of VHS, sometimes I, I put a copy of The Hunchback of Notre Dame that was silent with no music. And so I'd have to find like the Fantasia soundtrack and play it in the background while I was watching Hunchback. And it, uh, it just, it did not make for a great experience. It was frustrating. I think we can just, we have to go with what we've seen and we can talk about the fact that, yeah, this movie's not, may not be a hundred percent complete. It's missing some, but it's not a fragment either. I mean, it's, it's an 85 minute movie. It's got a beginning, a middle and an end. And I don't know, I couldn't find any information as far as like what may have been cut out of it. Occasionally, I think you could see that there may be some jump in action a little bit. And there was one thing that, and I don't know if this existed in other versions, but there was a lack of title cards at times with this film, which made it some, some silent films will, whenever time a character appears on screen, they will make sure you know who this character is. Jeff Owens as played by Robert Redford is, you know, the master of ceremonies, you know I mean? They'll, they'll give a little description. So, you know, Hey, that's the character. That's who he is. Some silent films won't do that. You kind of just have to figure out who is this, who is this person? Title cards can help. A lack of title cards leaves it almost up to interpretation. And this film, I felt there were times where you were almost kind of interpreting exactly. You got a feel for the way the characters were acting, but you didn't know exactly what they were saying to each other because there wasn't enough title cards to tell you exactly what was happening. So it's left to interpretation. You see a love scene between a man and a woman and there's a lack of title cards. We can just assume that He's whispering sweet nothings in her ear. We don't need to know the specifics. Yeah, it's um, the emotions and the actors that... Expression. Yes, yeah. yes. If we could, I'm sorry to keep interrupting your flow, yeah, but let's talk for a sec about the experience of watching a silent movie. I mean, I don't know so much about silent, but I know like foreign films, people don't like to watch because they have to read yeah. them. You know? Silent movies, for me, they move very quickly, especially the Gollum, and I... Golem, I believe, and this is one of the things we'll see between the first movie we watched and the last, is that very short scenes, and I assume that had to do with technology of the time, cameras, maybe not being able to hold much film, I don't know, something, but very short scenes, so that gives the impression that it's moving very quickly. The music that they choose, you know, a lot of times, more times than not, it's very quick music sometimes faster than the action on the screen. And then as far as the the title cards that you mentioned, especially in this one, there aren't many. So you don't have to worry about reading, having to read the movie. That's and the thing with a silent movie is that it, it requires you to pay attention. Exactly. You can plug in, write a Frankenstein, and you can look away for a second. Yeah, you might miss something on the screen, but you got voices. You know, you can kind of hear... You look away from a silent movie, you may miss a title card that gives away a key plot point, and then you don't know what's happening. Yeah, you you really need to sit, watch, and immerse yourself into the film a lot more than you, you would. You could get by not doing that with other films and still enjoy the film and still know what's going on the screen. A silent film, you could get lost very quickly. Yeah, and I think also having to pay that much attention also helps it go... When I'm paying attention to anything, it goes quicker for me. You know, you can't be distracted. And 
you can't be on your phone and you're really focused. And I think you get more out of it that way. So for me anyway, I love silent films for that aspect. Yeah. I don't normally think, Oh, I want to watch a silent film. I'm not like a, like you are where you're an enthusiast for them. But every time I watch them, I thoroughly enjoy them. And I do think it's because of that extra energy I'm investing in it. It, it pays me back and I get that back from it. Well, and I've got to be in the right mood for a silent film. So it's like, I can always sit down and if, if Star Trek's on, bam, I'm into it. If Laurel and Hardy are on, I'm into it. If Frankenstein's on, I'm into it. Silent movie, I got to be in the right mood because I know that, okay, I need to sit. I need to focus. I gravitate more towards comedies uh, in the silent era because, as you said, they're quick paced. You don't need a lot of title cards because sometimes it's a lot of slapstick humor. It's visual. You really don't need to know as much about the character development as just to know is like, okay, this guy's Buster Keaton is 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 the sad sack, you know, or or you got Chaplin as the little tramp, or Harold Lloyd is kind of the boy next door. And here's the the odd scenario that they got themselves into. And I think that's why silent comedies are probably the most accessible silent films. On this most recent episode of Star Trek Discovery this week. I was just going to ask if you watched that. I saw that. Buster Keaton at the end. Here they are in the, what what century are they in now? I've lost track. You know, they're, they're 24th century, I think. Maybe beyond, I can't remember. They're still watching Buster Keaton. Buster Keaton in, in, in on the hangar deck and having a drive-in movie experience. I thought that was awesome. I mean, that showed the timelessness of that type of, of comedy and the people were laughing. Now, you play the Gollum to the same crowd, they're probably going to be wondering what the heck's going on here. For me, silent comedies are always accessible. I do go to the silent Kansas Silent Film Festival every year in Topeka we go to the silence in the cathedral around Halloween time. I, I can immerse myself in those, but it's a little harder for me to, to, to get into a silent film all the time. I've gotten picky. I, I need a good print and I need good music to go along with it. And it can be piano music. It can be organ music. You know, it can be an orchestra and it has to be the right orchestra. Was it last year we saw Metropolis at the Kansas Silent Film Festival. And I forget the name of the, there's two orchestras that are, are very popular in the silent world. I can't remember the name of the orchestra, but it was very bombastic. It was not kind of a, a typical orchestra. It was like, you know, ah, very loud. I enjoyed it to a degree. Carla did not. It was just like way too loud. And she really wants to see that film with a more traditional orchestra score which is what's on the Blu-ray. And we haven't gone back to rewatch it, but she wants to rewatch it. And I think she'll have an entirely different experience. Case in point, music can make or break an experience for you. Some people love that. Some people love to watch a silent film with special effects sounds and, and things. And I think it was the Golem. Yeah, actually there's a print. If you have Amazon Prime, they've got the Golem on there. And I watched it to kind of compare what version they had and, and what it looked like. Horrible. <laughs> Good print. Comparable almost to what, what we have on YouTube. But it's got sound with it. Someone has not only recorded sound effects, they've recorded voiceovers. Yes. And it's like when the 
I think it was when the rabbi is like motioning the golem, and this guy is like, come, come here, follow me. And it's like, what the heck is this? It was so, it's, it's not the way the film was intended. Someone has taken it. That's fine. You can do that. And maybe you'll enjoy that. That's not the way the film was intended to be seen. It, it, it's, it's not what I would recommend anyone watch. If that's your thing, great. If you really want to be a silent film enthusiast, know that that was never the intent. Sound effects can, can be good. Percussion, what have you. When I go to the silent film festival, they've got two guys that are typically there. And, and one of the guys, Bob Kukaisen, is a percussionist. So he'll add little sound effects. Like if somebody drops on the floor, there's a knock on the door or something like that. That can be fun. Uh, and that doesn't take you out of the moment. Sometimes it can immerse you in the moment. There's not anybody with a microphone providing voiceover for the characters. So it's certainly not for a movie like Golems. Anyway, I think it's important which version you watch. So let's talk about the film. So Paul Wegener was really heavily involved in this film. He, he wrote it with uh, Henrik Lean. He directed it. He was a well-known writer, director, and actor in Germany. Um, this was actually his third Golem film. The first was called The Golem, 1915. That version was set in the 20th century. The Golem, there's reference to, to Rabbi Lowe, and the Golem is basically reactivated in modern times. It looks the same as, as he, he had the same Golem in all three films. So what we see in this 1920 film is basically the same design that he had in the 1915 film. The golem acts the same because it's Paul Wegener playing the golem. He plays the golem in all three films. He wrote them all. He directed them all. We really can't see this film other than a fragment of it because it is lost. A uh, portion of the second reel, I don't think it's the entire second reel, but a portion of the second reel was discovered in the same Argentinian museum where the missing footage of Metropolis was discovered several years ago, quite a few years ago now and was put on the most recent Metropolis Blu-ray release. You can find about almost four minutes of the footage is available on YouTube. I don't know if more footage was found or if that's all that was found, but it's pretty good quality. Gives you a, a brief idea maybe of what this version was about. Basically, it's you're, you're seeing a group of people getting chased and there's the goal. I mean, there's not a lot there again it's four minutes less than four minutes but it gives you an idea of what his original vision was interestingly enough though two years later he follows us up with the golem and the dancing girl which was a horror comedy about an actor who impersonates the golem and wears the golem costume not a lot is known about this one again this one's also lost however supposedly Eight minutes of footage exists in the hands of a private collector. Beyond that, I think we got a still or two from it, and that's all we know about this one. It sounds more like a, a little oddity than something that would fit with the, the rest of, the, of his Golem films, because 1920 Golem film basically is a prequel to his 1915 film, because he is going back to the origin story with... Rabbi Lowe creating the golem to essentially 
he's creating this golem figure out of clay to protect the Jewish people from persecution. However, I didn't feel like this film showed that persecution really well. And a little bit we're going to talk about, I want to talk about the 1936 film, and that movie does that a million times better. It's kind of like, in this film, it's talked about, but you really don't see it as much. This film does something that, again, the 36 version doesn't even touch on. And that, and, and I don't think this was touched on in the 1915 version based on what we know, but it's like, what's behind the creation of the golem? And it is heavy in Jewish mysticism, dark arts, astrology, the character that they mentioned the name Astaroth several times. Astaroth is actually in demonology. He is a great Duke of hell and is in the first hierarchy of hell serving alongside Beelzebub and Lucifer. So basically you're dealing with a high demon of hell, a great Duke of hell is the Astaroth character that's behind the creation so you've got a Jewish rabbi who is trying to protect his people, but he's kind of making a deal with this demon from hell, which I think is interesting because as I understand the Jewish faith, and I'm not an expert, they really don't believe in hell. So it's an interesting mix here a little bit. The, the golem is a, a folklore creation of the character from clay to protect the people some of the myths talk about like a scroll it's included like kept in the mouth of the golem sometimes it's a it's a, a series of symbols on the forehead here it's the badge on his chest that basically gives him life you know i never picked up on that before i'd seen this one it'd been a long time i was a little surprised at the dark arts part of it the, the darkness behind the the creation of the golem yeah i was too sort of, I mean, I don't know history. I don't know anything about this time or the people. So you're right. When he foresees disaster in the stars, I figured that well, there's going to be flooding or an earthquake yeah. or something like that. But it's really just the, so who are the, the, the bad guys here? It's a royal royalty of some kind. That's like the emperor, the I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, because I mean, the, the idea, and I, I don't know that they really stress in this film is that that it's supposed to be set like in, in, in Prague dealing with the persecution of the Jewish people in, in the, in the ghettos, which again is, is much, is done much better in the 36 version. Well, let me talk about the 36 version. And, and let right. me just finish my thought here. So okay. yeah, the, the, whoever this entity is, it's ironic because they view the Jews as wizards and sorcerers. Yeah. I mean, they meant, they use that wording and yet, and they are. So it's just, it's confusing to me because then therefore the the bad guys that are persecuting him, they aren't really slandering him or no, they're just calling him what they are. But yet I don't think the, the Jews in this movie perceive themselves as that. No. So I don't know. It's interesting. It's very, I don't know. For me, it's very complex. I don't really understand. It is. It's complex and it's not, I, the Gollum is a classic and I, I'm not knocking the Gollum because I just feel like there is, there's gaps in this story and some of it is the lack of title cards. And I don't know, maybe there was a version out there that explained this better. Maybe this is it. 
I feel like we needed a better explanation, a little bit of, of the dynamics and what was going on because it's like, I, I, who am I cheering for here? Because we've got the Jewish people are being perceived as working in the dark arts and where's the persecution at? I mean, yeah, they're considered secondary citizens. They're, I don't want to say they're laughed at, but you know, when the night Florian at the beginning of the movie kind of has this whole, he's an interesting character in himself, but it's like, he looks down upon them. Yeah. You know? Well, they're going to um, be exiled or something. I mean, he, they're, yes. uh, they're being they're told that a decree is made and they're being told they must evacuate the ghetto. So I yeah. guess that's the disaster. That's, that's the disaster. They're being told basically to they're getting evicted. And if they don't leave, they'll be forcibly removed, which we don't see in this movie. It, it never gets to the point where, no. to me, it seemed like a real threat. Uh, no. In 1936, there was another version of the Golem, which does serve as a sequel to this one. It's called Le Golem. It's also known as the Man of Stone or the Man from Prague. It references Rabbi Lowe having created the Golem to protect the Jewish people. And the Golem is now kind of, in hiding of sorts, it's in protection, and a Jewish rabbi essentially in this film is the one that's protecting it. And and when the time is right, the golem will be will come to the to the aid of the Jewish people again. This movie deals with the the emperor Emperor Rudolph, and actually talks about like he that he knew Rabbi Low and had good conversations with him and such. And the emperor is kind of a sympathetic character. There's all these subplots about how he, he's got to marry, I, I want to say Isabella from Spain. They make reference to that, but he's also got this relationship with his countess, but the countess is, she kind of loves him, but she doesn't. There's a little question there. And then the golem looks different in this film. He looks a bit more like, like a Frankenstein monster creation. And I'm going to go back to Frankenstein here in a moment, but he looks more like a creation that we would see in a Frankenstein film. This one deals definitely does deal with the persecution of the Jewish people. They're rounded up. They're, they're put into prison. They're going to be essentially executed. You've got these lions. That's, you know, (laughs) the lions are going to attack them. They actually capture the golem at one point and of course, then the golem eventually gets loose. And, and uh, I mean, I'm, I'm bypassing a lot of plots. I don't want to go too much into this film, but it, it, it definitely ends with the golem on a rampage, tearing down the castle. And he's going after all the bad people who persecuted. I mean, it's, it tells the story. He is there to protect the Jewish people. And the rabbi at the very end stops the golem after the destruction's been done. You've done your job. Return to dust as you, as you were. And poof, the golem dissolves and he scratches the thing on his forehead and they use a forehead symbols and he scratches one out and causes the golem to basically dissolve. I think that it, it tells the story so much better. The problem is there's just not a good print of this available. Alpha video has a print available. I'm going to assume it's probably the same print I have. I'd love to have an original, a good French print with good subtitles. This one was a, it looked like it was a 1940s version. The subtitles were blending into the background and the subtitles were actually on the print itself. 
and sometimes there weren't subtitles. Music choices were odd. Sometimes it was obviously the original music. Sometimes it sounded like new music. But it's a real, I thought it was a much better story. Carla caught part of it and she agreed. She said, this, it tells the story better of like why the golem is created. And he is actually protecting the Jewish people in this version. It's interesting too, the 36 version, it was directed by Julien Duvivier, who is a great French director, did a couple of movies. He came to Hollywood when the whole Germany going bad route happened and he did a couple of movies in the early 40s, Tales of Manhattan, which is a an anthology film and features W.C. Fields, Flesh and Fantasy, which is considered the first by some. It's a pseudo, it's not really horror, but it's a fantasy anthology film uh, that predates the 45 Dead at Night. And I have Flesh and Fantasy, and it's 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 interesting. It's it's uh, it is fantasy, it's not horror, it's not sci-fi. It is a mixture of drama and fantasy. Anyway, Julian Duvier directed this film. The star of the film, Harry Bauer, he plays the emperor. The emperor is the main character. And kind of a sad end for him. He was basically in occupied France, and he wanted to make a film in Germany. But, of course, he didn't have the credentials, so he faked his credentials so that he was of Aryan origin, it was discovered either before or after he made the film. I, I, there was conflicting accounts. He uh, was arrested by the Gestapo. He was tortured for days, released, and then died a couple of days later from the result from his torture. He was 62. I recommend people seek that film out as some extra credit, if you will. There is a copy on YouTube, but it it has Spanish subtitles. It doesn't have English subtitles. I believe the alpha video version is going to have probably what I have, which is going to be the original 1940s era subtitles. And it's there's just going to be scenes that you just have to assume the conversation because there's just no subtitles with it. And it's, it is kind of a washed out print, but it, I feel it's a much better story. I, I personally want to say it's better than the Golem from 1920. Uh, simply from the story, the Golem has is a better horror film because it deals with the dark arts, but the overall story I think is better is told better. It makes more sense. It's more cohesive in the thirty six version. Nineteen twenty, it takes a turn and becomes really a standard horror. I mean, and that is it does yeah a typical trope that oh the thing you create turns on its master and you know starts yeah. attacking uh, the Jews. Because they go down the path of, of, yeah, it's like when it's astrology, right? When the stars were in a certain alignment that Astaroth would gain, regain control of the creature. Yep. And the creature, I mean, one scene he's ready, he's like raising his hand. He's ready to strike down upon Rabbi Lowe. You've got this crazy subplot with the daughter of the rabbi falling in love with the knight or the knight using her. And then the rabbi's assistant getting jealous and then using the, the golem to gain revenge and the golem goes on a rampage and people getting thrown off roofs and buildings getting burned. And then the golem breaks the spell basically, or the spell is broken. The golem has a redemption. And that's where if, if you didn't pick up on it before, then there's some similarities to Frankenstein. 
there's just no way that you you can watch that final scene where the golem is with the little girl and there's a flower without thinking Frankenstein and the little girl by the lake in the 31 Frankenstein. It's a beautiful scene showing that this creature is not evil. You know, he was created by man. He, he didn't have control over his actions. Plus you've got this demon Astaroth who controlled him. But now without the mission, without the rabbi telling him what to do, without the rabbi's assistant, without Astaroth, he just has this tender moment with this little girl. And everyone else who tried to get the star out of his chest, it's the little girl who does it because there was just a moment and he didn't care. He was just in the moment with the little girl and she takes the, the badge off and then he basically reverts to nothing but stone. And it ends with them basically hauling him back in as a hero as, you know, he saved the day after practically burning the village down. He saved the day, which I thought was odd. I also thought very odd that the rabbi's daughter and the assistant have this weird moment at the end where the assistant says, well, I didn't see anything and I won't say anything. That's that scene. And she kind of leans into him. And I, I don't know. It's just to me, it's like, I couldn't be sympathetic with her because she had the hots for the night. Now she's with the guy who basically put the golem in charge of like, because that was a brutal scene. He's like, grabs the golem, grabs her by the, the braids and the drags her by the braids. Yeah. Like my gosh, you know, I mean, the golem was vicious in this movie at times. And Frankenstein, I mean, the, well, first of all, the whole concept, you know, man created monsters. But then even the image of him carrying Miriam. And I wondered if this was really one of the first times ever in cinema that the monster is carrying the woman in his arms as he walks, you know, that's, is there a scene in, well, it may be what, because Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, I think, has a scene like that, doesn't it? But it's about, it's released, what, 2019, 1920, same time period. Yeah. It'd be really close. I also like the scene where the golem uh, goes into Miriam's room and, you know, he pounds on the door and nothing happens. And so he puts out his arms and pushes his arms just go right through two holes in the door that must have been one tough door with hinges that wouldn't oh yeah yeah because i mean it is funny because in contrast in the 36 version the golem i mean when he pushes down like a door the door comes down and like the walls and the support beams everything comes crashing down so it's like in this one yeah just the hands go through and that one half the building comes crumbling down it's kind of funny the character of the rabbi's daughter, Miriam, was played by Lida Salmanova. They were actually man and wife. Oh. And so, not a surprise, she appears in all three Golem films. Uh, <laughs> and different characters, but she appeared in all three. And I'm going to say, on most of these films, especially these first two, I don't have a lot on the actors because they did a lot of German films. You know, so I'm going by what's the ones that we're familiar with basically are the ones we're talking about, but I will, we got all good recognition. Rabbi Lowe is played by an Albert Steinruck. Lothar Muthel appears as Knight Florian. What an odd little dude he was. Ernst Deutsch is the rabbi's assistant or the apprentice, if you will. He did appear in an, uh, 1949 as the third man with Orson Welles uh, in a supporting role. So he did do some Hollywood films, but Besides The Third Man, The Golem was really the big two films of his career. 
Paul Wagner, he survived during World War II. He appeared in German propaganda films. He stayed in Germany. He disliked the regime. Basically, he survived by appearing in propaganda films. <laughs> and that got a bit of negativity towards him for a period of time. Because there was some thought that he was maybe a sympathizer to the Nazis. And I don't know, because there was some indication that he may have been part of maybe some resistance and he was just kind of trying to survive very much like that actor Harry Bauer that I mentioned from the 36 version was also suspected to be part of, of a French resistance that played more into his torture by the Gestapo when they when they got a hold of him Sir Paul Wagner uh, he continued to act after World War II and uh, died in 1948 at the age of 73. Parts of this film was also directed by Carl Boys, or yeah, Boys, uh, who was also very well known in Germany, but nothing that I recognized looking at the list. One supporting actor, and this this is a about as close as I'm going to get to a Star Trek reference, folks. There's no Star Trek, no Doctor Who today. Fritz Feld, he played a jester in this film. Better remembered to science fiction fans as Mr. Zumdish in three episodes of Lost in Space. He was the one that made the weird popping sound with his with his mouth hmm. whenever he would pop up. And he had like a circus and there was a beauty pageant episode. Mr. Zumdish was Fritz Feld. He did lots of TV roles in the 60s. He was also in Batman a couple of times. He's a character actor. But this was one of this was uh, one of his very earliest roles. And again, he I was a he was a court jester in the, the court scene where when Rabbi Lowe was doing the, the image on the screen and he told the people not to laugh and then everyone laughs at the characters. I think that's about all I've got. I didn't, I, you know, again, a little harder to find trivia on, on these yeah. foreign silent films. I liked the golem. Again, I hope people don't take my, my comments about it that I don't like it. I feel like it could have been a better film with a bit more explanation, a little bit about who the characters were. You had to kind of just assume who they were. Uh, and it wasn't until I was looking and like some, doing some research to really know. It's like, I, like I was trying to figure out, you know, the, the assistant. I was like, what was the relationship exactly of him? I mean, I kind of felt like he was an assistant, but at first I thought that he was some relative. I thought he was maybe a brother of the uh, the daughter you know i thought that they were maybe related because it's never really specifically described on screen but apparently he was intended to be an assistant i think i might have liked it a little more than you did even though i was kind of questioning a lot of it if you put all that aside and just look at this the, the plot the story it's very entertaining it's very simple and uh, it moves fast and I guess if you want to dig in deeper and understand why, uh, you know, you might be left lacking. But I think in most cases, it's very entertaining. And and I, I liked it. I enjoyed it more until I saw the 36 version. And the 36 version, which really covers the plight of the, of the Jewish people, they're two very different films. Because you can say the Gollum from 1920 has horror elements. Not... 100% horror, but it's got horror elements. The horror elements in, in the 36 version are, are marginal at best. It's more of a drama and more of a period piece with this 
Gollum fantasy character lurking in the background really until like the final act when all hell breaks loose. You couldn't call that. I mean, it would be fantasy, you know, a drama fantasy. But I felt like it, it told the, the story of the golem and, and, his, and his purpose better. And that's where I felt like then it kind of has tainted my opinion of the 20 version a little bit. Keeping that 36 version out of my head, I enjoy the 1920 version. I still do. I just felt like the purpose of the golem gets lost a little bit. It's like the original intent and then the, the havoc that it wreaks which really doesn't have anything to do with is the original intent for creating the Gollum. Right. And the Gollum's intent is visualized in the 36 version, but I still enjoyed it and I would still recommend it. And I'd go back to where we started saying that make sure you watch a good print. Don't settle for a public domain print. Make sure you want, you get the Kino classics Blu-ray or make sure that you watch the version that's on YouTube. That is color tinted with the, I, I, again, I forget who uploaded it, Steve Hollander, I think, or something like that, uploaded it a year ago. That's the version that I, I'd recommend that you watch. And there's a couple of other people who have uploaded that same version. And it appears to be from Kino Classics, maybe their a previous DVD version of it. So, and I think like the Blu-ray is an upgrade, but what's on YouTube is is perfect because it's it's leaps and bounds better than the, public domain version. Very good. Shall we take a break and then come back with our other movies? I think so. All right. That's what we'll do then. are back. Before we dive into our next movie, want to bring back something we haven't done for a while. What happened in 1921? So I had three years to choose from, 1920, 21, and 28. Hadn't done anything from the 20s, so it's a wide open slate. I chose 1921. I'm going to get semi-serious here for, for a, uh, a second because we don't touch on the realities of the real world, generally speaking, on this show. We have not talked about what's happened in 2020. We don't talk about the social justice movement. We don't talk about politics. We touched briefly on the pandemic, mostly has how it related to the podcast and the fact that we were just wishing everybody well. 
That said, as I dived into the research for this and what was going on in the world in 1921, which is almost 100 years ago, the one thing I found is that the saying goes, as, as much as things change, they still stay the same, and uh, history tends to repeat itself. Yes, very much the case, because several of the things that I found that was happening 100 years ago really are, are very similar to what we are going through in, in 2020. I'm not getting on a soapbox or anything. I'm just relaying the news as it was 20 years ago. For starters, the Spanish flu came to an end in 1920, uh, at about the same time that the Golem would have started filming. The Spanish flu had originated in February 1918. Did you know that the first case of the Spanish flu was actually reported at Fort Riley, Kansas. Hmm. Why they didn't call it the Fort Riley flu, I don't know. Nonetheless, the Spanish flu lasted more than two years, which is not what we want to hear, right? As we are not too far away from the one-year anniversary of this pandemic, and I don't, you know, it could very well go well into 2021 at the rate things are going. The Spanish flu had four distinct waves, and... The final wave happened in April 1921, by which point that wave had subsided and the Spanish flu was, was done. But it took just over two years from start to finish. Political intrigue, political parties not getting along with each other. That's always been something that, that we've been uh, going through. And apparently the United States does not corner that market because Sweden which, of course, is the country of which our next film was made, was going through its own political strife in 1920 and 21. In 1920, the Swedish prime minister by the name Jalmar Branting, pardon my pronunciation. Sounds good to me. He, he resigned because of some political strife. And so King Gustav V wanted to basically assign a new prime minister, appoint a new prime minister as an interim until the next elections could be held, which were to be held in October 1921. So he appointed a Gerard Louis de Guerre, who was the prime minister from October 27th, 1920, until February 23rd, 1921, at which time he resigned, because neither of the two political parties, we'll call it the right and the left, they didn't care for him. He couldn't get anything done. He didn't want to be prime minister. He resigned. King Gustav V had to go back and appoint another interim prime minister, this being an Oscar von Sydow, who was prime minister from February 23rd, 1921, until the next elections were held on October 13th, 1921, at which time Hjalmar Branting was re-elected prime minister beginning the second of his eventual three terms as prime minister of Sweden. So in the course of one year, Sweden had three different leaders. Talk about division within a country. The Irish Free State was created after declaring their independence from the UK in 1919. However, Northern Ireland did not want to be a part of that because they wanted to remain part of the United Kingdom. So Northern Ireland was created on May 3rd, 1921, and that remained in effect until 1937 when Ireland was 
unified and is now simply known as Ireland. But the North and South and Ireland opposed, and there was opposition to the UK. Again, nobody could seem to get along. How about a little bit of social justice and race riots for good measure? Well, a very sad day in American history happened, the Tulsa race riot on May 31st and June 1st, 1921. The traditionally Black district of Greenwood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, often referred to as the Black Wall Street, was the site of an absolutely horrific altercation between a white mob of, we'll call them racist supremacists, whatever you want to call them, basically clashed with the Black community. Uh, Some sources said there was even an airstrike on this particular district. An exact number of deaths has never been determined because there was just so much chaos and cover-ups. But approximately 300 Black citizens were killed Most of the Greenwood District was destroyed, and this bit of history was buried for decades. Tulsa, people who lived in Tulsa didn't even know about this a few decades later. It wasn't until June 2001 when reparations were finally made, and now some 20 years later, this is still a horrific piece of American history that is overlooked in our schools and isn't even known by a lot of American people. A hundred years ago, this stuff was going on and we still don't seem to learn. A little bit of dark history from a hundred years ago. 1921, March 4th, the first burial of an unidentified soldier happened at Arlington Cemetery. This would be the first step into the eventual creation of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Babe Ruth hit his 138th home run in June, breaking a record that had been held by Roger Connor for 23 years. Ruth eventually extended his record to 714 home runs, and that record stood until 1974 when Hank Aaron broke the record. Adolf Hitler became chairman of the Nazi party in Germany in 1921, and a little bit of confusion with who was president and who should be president. Woodrow Wilson was president of the United States until March 4th. That was when Warren G. Harding became the next president after having won the election in November 1920. So inauguration was a little bit later back then. Woodrow Wilson, a little controversial, he suffered a near debilitating stroke in 1919 that was essentially kept from the American public. His appearances were greatly limited. And of course, we didn't have social media back then to report such things. He continued to serve as president, but finally by 1920, the word had gotten out and there was no chance for him to go for re-election because of the fact that his ability to lead was greatly hindered. And so Warren Harding won the election that year and became the next president on March 4th. Wonder Bread began distribution back in 1921. Albert Einstein won the Nobel Prize for his work on solar energy not for his uh, relativity Hmm. theories. Andy's Candies were created. The first White Castle hamburger restaurant opened in Wichita, Kansas. The Bloody Mary drink was invented. Top musicians of the day included Al Jolson and Eddie Cantor. Top movies included Charlie Chaplin's The Kid and how apropos, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse (laughs) was popular in 1921. That's what was going on in 1921. And I don't know what the price of gas was in 1921, but it was probably fairly cheap. 
Let's talk about then a, a cheery feel-good movie then uh, that also <laughs> came out in 1921. Yes, full of death and despair and darkness. Yet, I'm going to come right out of the gate and say an excellent film. Phantom Carriage, 1921, a Swedish film based on the 1912 novel Thy Soul Shall Bear Witness, otherwise known as Korkarlin, written by Selma Lagerlof, who was a very well-known Swedish author in the late 1800s and early 1900s. She had won a Nobel Prize in 1909. Her home is now a museum in Marbaka, Sweden, so she was very prominent in that actually plays a part in the development of this film and actually the fact that it even got to be seen because of the dark nature of this film dealing with supernatural elements. You couldn't do that in 1921 Swedish film, but because it was based on her story and she had given her permission for the story to be made by writer and director Victor Jostrom, basically the board and the officials who would have censored the film decided to look the other way because she was indirectly involved in the film and they didn't want to mess with her. They looked the other way and the film got to be released and anybody else made it or if it was based on any other piece of work, they would not have made this film in 1921. You couldn't do this kind of supernatural stuff. Too dark for the American public or for the Swedish public to, be, to see. Kind of interesting compared to 1920s The Golem, which is dealing with a deal with a devil, which I think is a lot darker than what we see here, at least, you know, in theory. This is dealing with essentially an agent for the angel of death and deals with redemption and hope indirectly by the time we get to the end of the film, which has a good message. I'm not sure if The Golem had quite the same message, but The Phantom Carriage certainly did. What did you well, think of the film? That's, 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 I love this movie. I had written about it before one year during the countdown to Halloween when I did Around the World. So I had seen it before and was happy to watch it again. This is my first time viewing for me. Oh, yeah. um, I, I guess we didn't talk about that. Was The Golem your first time watching that? Yes. You, okay. It, it was my first time in probably 20 years. This was my first time watching The Phantom Carriage. It'd been on my radar for... Uh, five, six, seven years. And I was incredibly glad to finally see this film. Uh, Let's talk is, about what versions we saw, because that is plays a big part in my experience. Yes, because we saw two different versions. Again, I went to YouTube for this and uh, watched a the Criterion version. I don't know that it's the Blu-ray version, but a DVD version. I think they're kind of one and the same, essentially, I think the Blu-ray is an upgrade from the DVD version, but the version I saw was an, an orchestral version. I don't know the uh, I don't know the orchestra who did it. I don't know that it necessarily listed. I think it listed maybe the musicians, but wasn't a specific orchestra. Nonetheless, good music, good orchestral music that was made to fit what was going on on screen. So whether or not it was an original, I don't know but it was definitely connected with what you were seeing on the screen. Criterion would not release a silent film with just a random soundtrack. So I think that's important to note is that when you got somebody like 
Kino or Criterion, or as we'll talk about with the man who laughs, Flickr Alley, there is thought that goes into the music that they attach with a, a silent film. So that's the good news. That's what I saw on YouTube. You saw something different. Yeah, so it was Criterion. I had uh, rented it from Netflix and, and burned it, so I had access to it. I think they overthought the music on this. It was an experimental score by KTL, whoever or whatever that is. And yeah. it was a lot of ambient music, noises. It, it's great at first. It's like, the, the thing it reminded me of was Twin Peaks. That was perfect for the mood and the atmosphere. But if I go back and, and look at that review that I wrote, I said, I don't recommend watching it with this music. So I didn't apparently remember that I wrote that. And I would like to see it with a different score because this, it just goes on too long and it's too, it's just too much in my opinion. So that's what I watched. It, it, it did not affect, you know, me really liking or not liking the movie. It just wants, made me want to see it with different music. A different experience, yeah. I mean, it's good that it didn't deter you from your enjoyment of the movie, which I mean, that's a good thing. You know, the when you do experimental soundtracks like that, some people love that when they watch their silent films. They would rather watch that than watch a, a piano score, an organ score, or, you know, an orchestral version. For me, an orchestral version is always my preference. I can enjoy and have enjoyed silent films that have nothing but piano or nothing but organ. You know, I like the variety and the orchestra score is, is particularly good. I think for longer films, because it allows for a little bit of variation and allows for a bit more personalization for the different scenes that you can get with piano or with, with an organ. Organ is a lot easier, I think, than a piano. For me, piano is perfect for a lot of shorter comedies because uh, it's lighter, it's brighter. You know, you can just kind of zip around. An organ is an acquired taste. and It's got to be a good organist. The Silent Film Festival, Kansas Silent Film Festival, has a uh, Dr. Marvin Falwell who lives in Kansas City who is amazing and does an amazing job. Also, you and I and, and, and Carla have seen some silent films here in Kansas City at the Kaufman Center. They bring in organists. Dorothy Papadopoulos. I'm probably butchering that last name. You might be a short one, Appa Bapa, in there. But. Yeah. <laughs> she's she is a, a brilliant organist, and she does original scores. What you see on the screen and what she is playing goes hand in hand. I have vivid memories of when she was playing the the, the music to the transformation scene in Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. And the animation that she had, she was just practically, her hands were moving this and that. And it, it, she was so into it. And the music was stunning. And it was something that she herself had, had created. Ben Modell is someone who I, a gentleman that I follow who does a lot of original orchestration on piano and organ for silent films and other films as well. But I've seen a lot of his silent stuff. He does a weekly uh, silent film watch party on YouTube it has been since March and throws out two or three comedies every Sunday afternoon as his co-host. And they sit there and they talk about the films, basically him at home and then via YouTube playing these comedies and he's doing live music to it. It's amazing. It's free. And then orchestra, I think works best for longer pieces. 
and especially a movie that's got a drama and action and has kind of different elements, you can adjust the music to to go with the moment. But like you said, I mean, it, it didn't deter from your viewing. So I think sometimes experimental. A lot of people love the, the Giorgio Mortar Marin. version of uh, Metropolis. I don't. You know, I talked about earlier, the other version of Metropolis that I saw, that orchestra, the Alloy Orchestra. That's that's the one who did the um, very bombastic version. It was just wasn't to my taste. But uh, some other people love it. I think Steve Sullivan commented that he loved it. For me, I'd much rather watch something more orchestrated. And the music in most silent films I've seen is like nonstop from beginning to end. Silence can be part of the soundtrack at appropriate parts. Are there very many silent movies that actually take a pause and are quiet for a scene or two? If the the person doing the score is creating the score specifically for the movie, there'll be moments where they the music may be downplayed. Mm-hmm. I've never seen a silent film where like the music stops though. And I think that like, if you think of modern films, if there's a dialogue happening between two people, you don't need the music because sometimes the dialogue mm-hmm. is, is what you're hearing when you don't have that actual voice of the conversation and you're having to read the titles, having some, some background music will kind of get you through that moment. The best is to make it subtle so that it doesn't deter you from what the words you're seeing on the screen. But yeah, silent films, you don't have the intense conversations that you have in a sound film. If you've got a really intense confrontation, for example, um, Tom Cruise and, and Jack Nicholson, right? And A Few Good Men. I mean, you don't need music necessarily in that film because it's the dialogue, the banter going back and forth. In a silent film... You couldn't That's have that, right? Because it, you would just be reading and reading and reading. Yeah. So they have to make the, the dialogue shorter and briefer. And so that's where the music comes into play to help you get through those moments where you do have a bit more dialogue heavy moments, but it's nothing like a sound film. Yeah, that's a good point. A couple of things I noticed about this in comparison to the Golem, it, it uses some of the tinting. It didn't seem to be as either frequent or common as it was in the Golem, but it did use some more Title cards definitely had more to read, I guess, uh, more dialogue just in general. Longer scenes. You're starting to see the scenes getting a little bit longer. The camera's still stationary. It's not really moving around. Similar in a way, but yet we're starting to see a few changes maybe. That is entirely on the director. Victor Sostrom is... He's considered the father of Swedish cinema. He influenced Ingmar Bergman. He is considered one of the greatest early directors, film directors. He was revolutionary. And and you see that in this film because there was still a lot of films around this time period that that were doing the the quick cutting back. His his style in this movie was cutting edge for 1921. And that really comes into play as to, to why he was so influential on, well, I mean, again, Angmar Bergman specifically, but then Sostrom does make some films in America. He, he directed Lon Chaney in a film called He Who Gets Slapped in 1924, which I've not seen, but is supposedly one of Chaney's best films. 
He directed two Lillian Gish films, The Scarlet Letter and The Wind, both in 1926. Very highly, highly revered director. What you're seeing is a revolutionary doing some cutting edge stuff for 1921, especially comparing like Hollywood to foreign cinema. Hollywood was in, in some cases ahead of the curve compared to other countries. But then you, but when you look at some European cinema, I think they were more cutting edge at times. Sometimes Hollywood would, would get in that cookie cutter mode, you know, Oh, that's making money. Okay. Let's do this. Whereas you could do some more experimental stuff. And that's exactly what, what we had with the Phantom Carriage. I loved it. I, right out of the gate, very early on, picked up a similarity to A Christmas Carol. And I could not find anything that would confirm my thoughts that, that Selma Lagerlof was inspired by A Christmas Carol. She almost had to be. But I suppose maybe just, you know, she just had this idea of redemption and stuff. But I mean, basically, the, the overall format's the same. You've got the, the main character of David Holm, played by writer-director Victor Solstrom, kind of doing the Paul Wagner thing, putting himself in the lead role. He's a scoundrel. He, he is not a nice guy. He had it all. He had a family, beautiful family, and then he tasted the alcohol and that sent him down a really horrific path where he became a really bad person and led a life and made a lot of mistakes and hurt a lot of people along the way. And then has this moment where here comes, here comes death saying, let's take a look at how you screwed up and get that moment of redemption that essentially Scrooge had, right? Scrooge, was resistant and didn't care. and But then as he really started seeing things, Scrooge's moment, I mean, he had like when he would see Tiny Tim, there would be moments where he's like, gosh, I, you know, I should take care of, of Cratchit's family. And, and he would see, he'd think about his nephew and he'd think about, you know, gosh, you know, my, my sister wanted me to take care of him. And finally at that moment where, where death and, and a Christmas carol, where Scrooge is basically saying, this is where I'm headed if I don't change. And that's that final bit of nudge into the realm of, of redemption that makes Scrooge then have this turnabout and it's never too late to change. And we get, as, as told in that final moment, you know, for the rest of his days, Scrooge was, was the best man he could be. That little snippet was missing from, from this movie because and we're doing spoiler alerts here, but there is redemption at the end for David. We, we didn't get that just an extra, we know what happens. And I, and I don't want to give away the potentially horrifying climax of the film where his wife, played by Hilda Borgstrom, is on the verge of doing something horrific. And he is able to stop it from happening. And I guess it's, it's implied that, you know, he has changed. He's going to be the best husband and father that he can be. It would have been nice to have that little, that little addendum like we got at a Christmas Carol. It's like, you know, maybe like for the rest of his days, they, they were, they, that family was happy and he really did, was a changed man. It's not needed, but there was such strong comparisons with a Christmas Carol. 
that was something I saw at the end. I was like, yeah, I, I wanted to see the the Scrooge with Tiny Tim moment, moment where maybe he was truly with his family. And uh, I don't know. Not arguing, but I, I, I agree 100% Christmas Carol. I also got vibes of It's a Wonderful Life. But yeah. I disagree a little bit about like the details of getting there. Like it's not structured exactly like Christmas Carol. I mean, th- there aren't three vignettes. It, definitely focusing on... I'm not even sure because he actually, the way he goes on this phantom carriage ride is that he, whoever dies at midnight on New Year's Eve has to drive the carriage for the next year. So that happens to him. And as the current driver, who is someone he knows is driving him around, that's when he sees what's happening when he's not there to the people in his life. So it's a little different. I mean, the outcome is the same. I just, I didn't want people to think, oh, they're going to see past, present, future. No, no, I, 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 yeah, I didn't mean to imply that. No, it's, it's, we, we see flashbacks. Yeah. Uh, much like well, there's like, it's multi-level story within a story within a story. Right. It, it's um, not just, I mean, he is kind of like witnessing some of these flashbacks. Some of them like happens before David's death. He, he talks right. about a few things. I think what, what, is very different is the fact that it, whereas in like a Christmas Carol past, present and future don't have a personal connection to Scrooge. The angel of death's agent, George or George's I is uh, who's played by Tor Zvenberg. He was essentially the one who kind of set David down that path, right? David was on a picnic with his family and the other character, which I thought was like maybe a brother or brother-in-law, maybe just a good friend. I don't know. They didn't really explain who that other character was exactly. And then, of course, as they're on this picnic, then you see not too far away is George and a couple of guys and they're drinking. And George is the one who kind of sets him down that path of like, here, drink with me. We'll have fun and party. Well, disastrous results because David's, again, did they say it was a brother or friend or what that relation was of that guy? The one who ends up getting, not only did he get drunk, but he killed somebody and right. he's staying in prison. I don't know that they really explained exactly who he was, but that's a little different, right? Because the man showing him and taking him on this little bit of a journey has a very direct connection to him because he was kind of the one responsible for setting David down the path, wasn't responsible for everything that he did, but he was the one that set him on that course. And then David just, yeah, his his whole life just, the turning point really, I think, is when he came back and found that his wife and children had left. And he just started jumping to conclusions. And all of a sudden, then it was just like, to hell with it. I'm just going to be a drunk and be a scoundrel and, and do all these horrible things. And there's like, as you're seeing these flashbacks, like when he meets the character of, of Edith, there's a moment where you think that, that there is a good guy still in there, but it seems like he's struggling. It's like, it's almost like he feels like he's not worthy of it because she fixes his coat. He's going to get a meal and he seems happy about it. But then it's kind of like his, he overthinks it. It's like, I don't deserve this. And then rips up the coat, which was horrible. You know, it's like, what an asshole. He's just sitting there doing all that work. 
And yet she's shocked and obviously, you know, hurt, but she doesn't give up on him and she continues to, to meet him. The question that Carla had for me is like, she was trying to understand the relationship between Edith and David Holm. Uh, Edith, you know, being with the Salvation Army and being trying to help people. And she was trying to figure out like the love that, that she had for David. Was she, was it a sisterly love or was there a romantic love? Because it seemed the way sometimes it was more sisterly, but then it seemed like as if she was actually in love with him. But she was aware of the fact that he had a family. I don't know. Did you get any of that? Because I, I couldn't, I was on the same page. I was like, well, I'm not sure. Because sometimes it seems like it's just more like she cares for him and wants to help him. But then other times it seemed like there was some definite feelings maybe there. So first of all, back, uh, it's related to this, interestingly, but I also, you talk about not getting the moment of redemption. I, I got it big time with this. And it's hard to explain without, without kind of revealing it. Maybe I'll come to it here with my, my thoughts. So as far as Edith, why she feels that way, definitely innocent. I got it because this was the first person she was helping when she went to go to Salvation Army. And it pleases her to help the first person that God sent to her. I think there's just, you know, a heavy investment there. She prays for this guest, David, to be blessed in the new year. And you never really know all through it why she, on her sickbed, keeps calling for him and wants him. Well, it's because she wanted to see in one year if his yeah. life had been blessed. True. So there's that. Then there's also, that's one sort of redemption because, you know, you learn why she wanted to see him and she got to see him, right? Yeah, I mean, in a way, I mean, he was dead, when he when she saw him, but that was because you know he was there with the with we'll keep calling him Angel of Death, he, although he's not. But I mean, you know, there there was that moment, and that's why she could see him. But really, he was dead at that moment. Still, okay. When George is driving him on the carriage, and he says, "If he could, he would send mankind a New Year's message that they pray for their souls to come to maturity before they're reaped." The, the guy that's driving around says that. Well, those are then David's last words of the film is he prays to let yeah. his soul come in. So to me, that was the redemption moment. That that packed a little punch because it was all tied together kind of yeah. intricately. And yeah, then when he said that at the end, just, right. yeah. you know, it was even downright emotional for me. I yeah. just, it really hit me somehow. I can see that. I mean, that, yeah, that is kind of a, like I said, that the Tiny Tim moment of you see Scrooge and Tiny Tim at the very end of the movie or the best versions have that moment, right? Where you see Scrooge, he's, he's had those moments. There's several of them, I guess, at the end of A Christmas Carol, depending on the version you're watching, the best versions have where he has a moment with his nephew and he has a moment with Cratchit. Oftentimes the last scene, of course, is where he's got the Tiny Tim moment and Tiny Tim's healthy and bouncing around. Hey, maybe it's a little sappy, but I've always loved that ending. But yeah, you do get that. And it's just, yeah, it's a different version of it. Maybe because we're dealing with a silent film and some of it was reading the titles. Maybe that was missed in the moment. You still get the redemption, though. And I think that's 
That's the important thing, I think, in this movie, because, I mean, up to that, up to a certain point, you're really trying to like, am I rooting for David? Because this guy is not a nice guy. He sees that. And of course, what he does at the very end of the film shows that, you know, he still cares. But let's talk about what he does before that point. Now, we talked about Frankenstein in The Golem. Did his uh, little attack remind you of anything? Which moment? I when guess he goes, he finds his wife and child and goes in and she locks herself in the bathroom or the... Oh, yes. Yes. Yep. yes. Comes at her with an axe. Don't tell me Stanley Kubrick did not see this movie. There's, there's numerous sources that say that Stanley Kubrick was influenced by this scene. That that scene in The Shining with Jack Nicholson is a homage to this film, which incidentally is not the first time it was done. Supposedly, Victor uh, Zostrom was inspired by D.W. Griffith. There was a scene in a movie called Broken Blossoms in 1918 that had similar acts to the door thing, and he was inspired by that and did this version of it. I have not seen Broken Blossoms, but what I've read is that this version is much more intense than what we get in Broken Blossoms, because this movie is much more well-known than that, even though D.W. Griffith is well-known. I'm not even sure if Broken Blossom still exists. Phantom Carriage is well-known, and yeah, absolutely. That's, that's an intense scene. Of all the bad things he does, that's the moment where he's really totally unhinged, and you think, this is not going to end well. But then what does he do when he sees his wife on the, on, on the ground? You know, He has that moment where... Like I said, there's just there's those moments that happen of all the bad things that he does. He pauses sometimes. I just feel like it's like, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve. I'm just going to, I need to be bad. The interesting thing is, as to why this novel was written and gives you maybe a different light as to really what the message of this movie was. Selma Lagerlof was commissioned to write the novel as a form of public education on the evils of consumption. Consumption, of course, is another name for tuberculosis, which ties into alcoholism leading to tuberculosis and just the overall disease and people who have it and not caring and breathing and coughing. That was originally the whole gist of the novel. It was like they wanted her to write this thing to, to warn the public of the evils of consumption. You know, there's the redemption and, and uh, of the character, but why was the character down this path? Because of the evils of drink and, and, the, and being sick and the path that that led him down and not caring about his fellow man. Wasn't there a scene where they even referenced like coughing on people? Yeah. Yeah. Like I cough on people because they don't deserve or they deserve to suffer like we des- you know, like we suffer. I'm like, that's that's horrible. Again, history repeating itself, not to be topical, but I mean, there's people doing that today just to prove a point. Well, I don't need to wear a mask and, and people coughing and sneezing and spitting on people intentionally. That's horrific. There's so many dark elements in this film, but it never crosses that line of just where it becomes overly uncomfortable because it seems like, just as they walk up to that line and you have something horrific happening, they pull back just a little bit. They never cross it. Then they pull back. 
I think that's what makes this movie so good is that there's, there's always, no matter how dark it gets, you know, that hope is, is just on the horizon. It's like, it's a dark tunnel and you got to go through a lot of craziness, but you see that speck of light in the distance. You feel like maybe we're going to make it through this tunnel and get to that light. We just going to have to go through a lot of darkness to get to it. And that's what David does in the movie. He's got a, he's flashbacking and reliving and thinking of, of, of these horrific moments, but ultimately he's not a bad person. He has that, he's given that second chance, which in turn helps his friend because his friend almost, he feels a little more redeemed as well because he set David on this path. And it's like, he had a hand in helping David find redemption. He was lost and there was no hope for him, but he was able to help David and show that things weren't all lost for him. There was one thing, because he thought about like with the character of Georgian being the, the agent for the angel of death and what a horrible year that would be, right? Something that Carla didn't pick up on and, and some made me think maybe other people didn't pick up on it because she thought, well, it'd be bad, but would it be so horrible because there would be people that it's like you'd be picking them up and, and taking them on to the other side, right? And I thought, well, I said, but you missed the line where, for starters, they said that it's not just like a normal year. It's like every day is like, what is it's a passage of like hundreds of years or something, because basically you're traveling and picking up all these people. So it's like for what seems like a year, it would actually feel longer for the for the driver of the phantom carriage, because they're having to go to all these different stops. So it really feels longer to them. Plus the line that, that he said when he was with Edith is that take, he took David away and said, well, we need to go. Other people are going to come for her, which then implies that he doesn't get to take the good people away. He spends his year taking all the bad people away. Mm. And so there is no bright spot that you get to take this you know, wonderful old grandmother who lived a happy life and gets to go to heaven. He doesn't get that assignment. His assignment is to take the guy that blows his brains out. So he's seeing nothing but the dark side of death and the despair. He doesn't see the, the happier side of, of death, which there can be people traveling on to, to heaven or whatever you believe in and the happiness of being reunited with loved ones. They've lived a long, healthy life. He doesn't get those assignments. There, there was that one line that explains just how dark his job is. There is no bright spot to what he does because all he sees is the, he sees evil and darkness. That's what he sees. I don't Other- think I caught that. And that just shows you how many levels are to this movie and how yeah. complex it is. And, you could probably watch it over and over and get more and more out of it. Oh, absolutely. An incredibly well-made film. And going back to Ingmar Bergman, I mean, Ingmar Bergman has said that this film for the longest time in his mind was the best film ever made. And it was an inspiration for him, for him to do the films that he made. When he made the seventh seal, there were certain scenes on the beach in the seventh seal. He was, hearkening back to the scene of the carriage going into the water, it influenced him, you know, decades later. Uh, that scene was particularly creepy, right? When they do the underwater sequence. Yeah. 
Oh, that was very well done. Ingmar Bergman actually had Victor Schulstrom in Wild Strawberries. The it's a film I have not seen. I need to. It's a classic. The lead character in that film, Ingmar Bergman wrote with Victor in mind for that role. And mm. actually, Victor went ahead and, and, and did the film. And that was his very last role, was in that movie. Again, Victor is, is revered in, in Sweden. He died in 1960 at the age of 80. There's a sculpture in his honor in his hometown of Arjang in uh, Sweden. He is really the father of uh, Swedish cinema. If you love Bergman films, there wouldn't be Bergman films without this film. I mean, I've seen several, saw several interviews where Bergman really does credit him for, for his passion in, in cinema and, and uh, making films. This film is highly influential. Charlie Chaplin once considered this the best film ever made. And that's high praise from Chaplin, who himself has made some of the best films ever made. Two thumbs up for this one. Great, great film. Recommend you seek out the Criterion Blu-ray DVD or go on YouTube. I think the Film Preservation Society is the one that uploaded the copy of The Phantom Carriage. I think that's the version you want to see. I think they're the ones, either that or they did The Golem. It's vice versa, but there's it's out there readily available and something I would, I'd recommend everyone seek out. Me too. This is a great movie. I have nothing more to add. How can you add more to that? I don't All think right. so. Two well, thumbs up. Take another break and come back and do our last movie, The Man Who Laughs. Sounds good. a child, a royal heir returns home and is forced to choose his destiny. The Man Who Laughs from 1928 is an American film based on the novel by Victor Hugo and directed by Paul Lenny. Rich, what did you think of, well, I know what you think. You like this movie quite a bit. I do. I do. This is not a first time viewing for me, but it's the first time in at least 15 years. The DVD that I gave you, actually, I only watched once. It was a snap case originally, so it tells me that's early 2000s. And uh, I remember the first time I watched it, I struggled with it a little bit. I liked it, but I didn't remember really anything about it. The version I have is the new Flickr Alley Blu-ray. Flickr Alley is basically the criterion for silent films. They, They put out top-notch silent films on Blu-ray. And I guess they do DVD as well. So, you know, you're getting the best print possible, which again, is always important. I absorbed the movie a lot more this time. I really enjoyed it because I think it was a very well-made, very polished film because this came from Universal. It's late 20s. So 
filmmaking has advanced a little bit. You're dealing with uh, source material coming from Victor Hugo, who wrote The Hunchback of Notre Dame. We're going to talk about what I feel about that. But yes, I, I really did enjoy it. What about you? Not so much. Okay. And uh, maybe that will, why will be revealed as we go. I'm not sure. I, I'm going to start by, again, comparing it to the other two we've watched. And of course, now it's been, uh, what, six, seven years since the, the, the Phantom Carriage. So filmmaking has advanced quite a bit. So here we have camera that's moving uh, occasionally. Yeah. Um, here we have not only are the title cards just text, but sometimes there's a movement to the text and there's a, a background of colored, uh, well, not colored, but textured pattern rather than just, you know, black. So that's different. This had a couple of really interesting camera movements. One of my favorites was uh, towards the end when sort of simulating him falling and the camera like goes down into the crowd. That was really brilliant. But, you know, several times the camera zooms, it pans. Uh, there's a cart going down the road. It actually follows it. Uh, there's a Ferris wheel scene where it's, that was a kind of weird though. It didn't, didn't like go all the way around. It started yeah. to go up and then stop. But anyway, yeah. nevertheless, the camera's moving. The version I watched, I knew there was something funky when the Universal airplane started going around and it was, you could hear the propeller whirring. And I just thought, this is a silent movie. Would they have had that even? Anyway, that aside, the sound that I had to this, you'll tell us what it is, but it was music, constant music. I recognized bits and snippets from what I think are other Universal movies or little melodies that sounded familiar to me. But this also has some sound effects and even some speaking at certain points in it. So that was kind of off-putting for me. Uh, I will say, though, as far as the sound effects go, there was a scene where the crowd is cheering. You hear the crowd cheering. To me, it sounded like a cowbell was kind of ringing. And you know what? There could always be more cowbell. (laughs) Before we were recording, I thought that maybe you watched the movie tone 1928 version of this. However, I don't, you watched, I think a different version because on my Blu-ray, I've got, I had two options. I had an orchestrated option, uh, which is a brand new orchestral version done by students of the Berkeley school of music. It was absolutely stunning. But then I had the movie tone 1928 version Neither one had the airplane and universal thing. And I don't, I didn't watch the complete movie tone sequence, but I know that they, I mean, they added certain things like limited sound effects or whatever. And there was a late 1920s style music that was lurking in the background. And there was a song, One Love Comes Stealing, which is featured in the climax yeah, this had that. Okay, well, then maybe it was. When I selected it, there was no Universal logo. So in that regard, I don't know, maybe that was something that they added on and maybe since have taken yeah. off. Gosh, I, I would encourage you at some point, if you're here, you can borrow my copy or I'll give you, I should have given you the DVD version of it. I have Blu-ray and DVD that came with it. Watch the orchestral version. Yeah, I would I, like to. 
I think it could change your and you know the, the print wasn't that good either, which I was surprised for the DVD. I mean, it was didn't look as crisp no. and clear as either of the other two we watched, you and I don't know did. if that's common for well, that. So what you what you have is an early two thousands image entertainment version. I didn't realize then there was that much difference. The what I have, man, it was crisp and clear wow. and beautiful. So happy. Okay. When we meet, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the DVD that comes with it. And so you can take with you and and watch the new restoration with the orchestral music. It may still not be your favorite of the three films, but I guarantee you you'll come out with more appreciation for the film. As we've said, music in print yep. copy can make or break your experience. This what's, definitely what's available now from Flickr Alley is a beautiful print that I can't imagine would get any better and a soundtrack that does not need to be improved upon because the Berkeley School of Music nailed it. And there is no the other thing that my love not, comes feeling is not featured in that version at all. The, that's, that's another plus that song was horrible. Yeah. The uh, other thing, it, you look at uh, Phantom Carriage, it was an hour and 47 minutes. This is an hour and 50 minutes. Phantom Carriage, to me, sped by this drug. In fact, I had to watch it over two nights. I did feel, I, I was going to mention that. For me, I thought Phantom Carriage did drag a little bit towards mm-hmm. the middle. Five, maybe ten minutes out of Phantom Carriage's running time would have sped up some of the middle sequence a little bit for me. And I would agree, I, this movie could have had could have had maybe five or ten minutes shaved off of it to help with the running time as well. Now it didn't. I didn't think that it that it drug like you did. I was engaged watching the whole film. Yeah. But I've, I have seen films before with bad music or bad prints, and that'll wear you out. And I've, I've seen silent films like that before. Like I need a break because this music is not what I'm wanting to listen to, or the print is just kind of wearing me down. Much in the case of The Point, uh, Les Golem from 1936, I struggled getting towards the last half of that film last night. I was kind of tired, but I kept having to focus on the print because the print was bad, and really having to focus on the subtitles, and then the choice of music and some that, that crowd scene threw me out of it. That, so tell me, what do you like about it? What are you, do you think it's, it's strengths? And I enjoyed the story because essentially you have the main character of Gwen Plain, played by Conrad Veidt, is horrifically butchered at a young age to have his, a permanent smile put upon his face. It, it scars him emotionally as well because he lives his life basically as a sideshow attraction. But yet he's embarrassed by the smile and he can't show emotions other than people think he's happy all the time. That's the name, the man who laughs, the laughing man, as they call him in the movie. But he could be crying, he could be sad, but it always looks happy. And the love that he has for the character of Dia or Dea, played by Mary Philbin, who herself is blind, so she is as well kind of a, I wouldn't say she's a sideshow attraction, but she's, society looks down upon her in a certain way because she's blind, much like they look down upon him. Here's these two people that don't quite fit into to normal society, and they, they found each other. And he certainly has a love for her, 
she has a love for him, but it's the, the love story, I think, between the two. I just, I think it's, it's just, it's a well-told tale. It talks about getting past one's imperfections, you know, and being accepted, accepting yourself and not necessarily giving a damn what society feels about you. Cause we've all got our imperfections. We've all got our insecurities and, and I don't know. It, it's, it's kind of weird. I had a moment where I, I, I thought back to feelings that I had in 2017 year after I lost my wife and the thought of, I, I want to share my life with somebody and I want to, I want to open that up to other people and some of the insecurities I had when I did my profile on eHarmony, you know, I'm sitting there thinking I wasn't necessarily looking for love. I just wanted to share my life with somebody, do some fun stuff with somebody, go out on a date, do something. I had my friends like you and I, I love my, you know, those relationships. Yeah, it's that need to have that companionship with, with someone. But thinking about who's going to want me, right? Because I'm this middle-aged guy. I'm not Mr. Buff and Mr. Sexy, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Mr. Fluffy and I'm a nerd who loves to read comic books and watch horror movies. In my mind, I had that roadblock of who in their right mind am I going to find out there in the real world, you know, that, that wants that. Yet, once I get, I got past that and when I met Carla, realized really, truly, yeah, there's someone I'm me and it accepted me for who I am in a way that I don't think I ever did before. Just being able to, to be my goofy self and say goofy things and not be judged by it to be with somebody who says the goofy things right along with you and to have that, that connection with somebody. I saw that in, in the characters of Gwynplaine and, and Dea. These are two characters that society may view as damaged right? Because he's horrifically scarred, she's blind, yet they have a love for each other that quote-unquote normal people dream about and may never achieve. And they may have everything that they that they want and need, but are they really happy? Because think about the characters and the character, for example, of Duchess Josiana. Beautiful, has essentially could have anything she wanted, right? Not really a nice person. And you think about the character of, of Barcalfedro, bizarre name, uh, played by Brandon Hurst, who basically starts off as a jester and elevates himself into you know a, a bigger position within the, the, the court. He's got a prominent position. He's able to command and do a lot of things and, and has power and control over other people but a very nasty, dark person. I appreciated the fact that these two quote-unquote broken people were able to find themselves in the love story that it tells. And I saw some very strong, for the third time out of these films, a, a similarity to another story. And this one is the similarity to Hunchback of Notre Dame. Now, obviously, both written by Victor Hugo. I think that has to be whether it was intentional or not, obviously Victor Hugo had ideas and themes and, and was bringing them forth in the story. Hunchback of Notre Dame, you've got the, the gypsy girl Esmeralda who is, who is beautiful and attractive. And then you've got the hunchback 
who is hideous and, and malformed, and the love that he has for the gypsy girl, a different type of love story, certainly. She has an affection for him, different than I would say that, that Dia's affection for Gwynplaine is. But again, just kind of getting past the visual and, and going more towards what, what lies behind the visual, what lies in the heart of the, of the individual. And that's, to me, where the, the story that I, that I loved in The Man Who Laughs. I loved that aspect of it. I get that. Yeah. A couple things. She didn't know his face was like that because at one point he puts her hands on there to feel yeah. she's kind of startled. Okay. And then I think she's always romantically loved him. I, I don't think that he realizes his love for her is romantic. And is it just the lure of, oh, someone else might love me even though I look this way? Is that why he even entertains the notion of going to the castle and meeting with the I think so. Yeah, it's that... Because I, I, th- I think that he had an attraction or, or and feelings for, for Dia because they had lived their entire life together, essentially. I mean, I mean, he was, you know, however old he was, she was a baby. I don't, I just don't think that he felt maybe worthy of her, but then you've got this other, when, when, you know, there's this possibility and, and maybe somebody could want me and it's that lure of, Oh, wow. You know, and I think let's be honest, that's the plot of, you know, 10 gazillion 80s movies, right? Yeah. You know, and then it's the, what happens at the end of the movie is like, you go with the hot chick over here is not where you need to go. You need to go with the Molly Ringwall character over here because that's the one who really has a heart and has has character. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of an age-old story. But by 1920 standards, I, I don't know how, how old of a story it was, certainly on cinema, it hadn't been told that much, you know, and I'm sure it had been told prior to this in, in the 20, 30 years that cinema had been around at that point. But this was a, a grand story veiled with this horrific aspect of this ghoulish grin of the three movies. This one is, is by far the least horror. I think there's the horrific element of the, the scarring of the, of the face, but once you get past that, like I, I, it's hard pressed for me to say Hunchback of Notre Dame is a horror movie. There's horrific elements because of the way the Hunchback looks, but it's much more of a of a dramatic piece with a kind of a love story thrown in, and it's a little bit of swashbuckling or adventure, which you get in this one. You get some straightforward swashbuckling at times as he's basically dashing around. He's being chased and. And there's the big climactic scene, the adventure of getting to the boat on time. Let's give it up. A special shout out to Homo the Wolf, uh, <laughs> played, played by Zimbo the Dog, in case you needed, that's with the name in the credits. I almost texted you and said, what I really like about this is the dog's name is Homo. <laughs> Homo, Homo the Wolf. And Homo, yes, spoiler alert. As you watch this film, if you're sitting there wondering, is Barcolfidro going to get his? Well, yes, he does. How wonderful that it's Homo the Wolf gets that that last bite in and is saved as well. He somehow manages to make it to the boat, climbs up the boat, and gets saved and is there for the final scene. I That's awesome. And you know how much Carla loved that. Much better without that crazy 
when love comes stealing song, good orchestral. Cause I, I saw that I was like, Oh, that just ruins the, cause it's not a good song. It's a very dated tune from the late 1920s may have been great. 1928. And I love old music, but there is a particular style of old music that I, I don't gravitate towards. I don't gravitate towards that style. I think that, change the tone of the final scene entirely the orchestral version and what we watched the the complete version that made that final scene so much better question when we start talking about hunchback and and i was thinking that's been remade so many times you know has the man who laughs been remade and if not why and from all i can tell and you may know more it looks like it was remade one time in 2012 actually I don't know. Yeah. Huh. With Gerard Depardieu. Really? Yeah. And this is a much more horrific when playing, of course, what would you expect? Uh, I mean, it looks more like the Joker where you, it looks more like a scar. And when playing in this one, in the silent one, you know, it's just a formed, I don't know. It, this is silly. It's not a reason to not like it, but that did, it wasn't that horrific to me. I mean, people immediately saw him and laughed at him. And I didn't get that. I didn't get what his act was. You know, they made this big thing about, oh, he's coming to town and he's got this great act and there's a great crowd. Sort of showed what the act was, but all he did really was come out at the end and reveal himself. I mean... He's a sideshow. I mean, that's really... Yeah, what but... I mean, it wasn't presented that way, but I mean, it really was more of a sideshow attraction. He was a freak and he was presented that way. I've never been to a sideshow. I wanted to go to one when I was a kid. I don't think that they do them anymore. Certainly they shouldn't. The concept behind, you know, a sideshow basically was they didn't do anything. The bearded woman was usually sitting there. I'd stroke the beard a little bit, but that's yeah, was, that's true. It was like you were going to a zoo, and you were looking at at the exhibits of the zoo. That's yeah, but now, they had that little Shakespeare play thing they were doing before. Yeah, that. I mean, sometimes freaks would you know the freak shows would do something to where, like you know, they would have a little bit of interaction, like the man who has this the the flesh and puts the the needles through and stuff. There's a little bit of showmanship to it. Sometimes it's just observation. So I think they try to do a pseudo show, but really it wasn't the show that people were there for. They were to see the smile. And he was the laughing man because he always had a laugh on his face. Yeah. And they laughed and they thought it's like they were laughing with him, but really they're laughing at him. And you couldn't see to him. It was like, well, he's laughing. You couldn't see the hurt that he was going through every time that, that he would go through that and that what it was doing to his self-esteem essentially, which is again, plays into how could she love me and taking an affection from somebody, the first one that comes along basically, which ultimately he realizes is not where he needs to be. He needs to be with Daya because that's who he loves and, and realizes that she loves him. You know, I don't mean to discount how he looks that it is amazing makeup he looks incredible and i already kind of blew it but i'm sure you would like to tell us about the makeup and the inspiration that that was for starters this was supposed to be lon cheney's film so the man of a thousand faces would have 
probably had a fairly similar look, I think, had he had he done it. He probably would have put himself through a lot more torture than Conrad Veidt went through, which was painful enough because he basically had a set of dentures, but then he had basically these hooks that pulled his jaws back and his cheeks back. It was incredibly painful. He couldn't talk. So good thing this was a silent film, <laughs> but it was very, very painful for him. You know, Lon Chaney, well known for putting himself through some horrific things. See, Lon Chaney used hooks in his nose to pull his nose back for Phantom of the Opera. Lon Chaney would have done probably something very similar. The reason that Lon Chaney didn't make this film was because when Universal was originally going to make this film, Lon Chaney was still under contract to Universal. However, they couldn't get the rights to Victor Hugo's novel, so they went with Phantom of the Opera, which they had already looked at, had rejected, and decided to go back to because they still had Lon Chaney under contract and wanted to, to make this uh, make a movie with him. By the time they got the rights to the Victor Hugo novel, it was 1928, and Lon Chaney was now under contract to MGM. That's how Conrad Veidt ended up getting the role. Conrad Veidt was already well-known. He, he plays the character of Cesar in The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. He was in Waxworks in 1924, which was also directed by Paul Lenny, who directed The Man Who Laughs. Waxworks was such a cutting-edge film for the time that was essentially what got Paul Lenny hired by Universal was the work that he did in Waxworks and also played a part in why Conrad Veidt ended up getting the role because he had previously worked with Paul Lenny. Conrad Veidt had also done The Hands of Orlock in 1924, the first movie, I believe, with the concept of putting someone else's hands, which, you know, what Peter Lorre did that in Mad Love and you have... That's a theme in countless other films over the decades that followed. Hands of Warlock is the original that, that dealt with that. Have you seen either of those films, Waxworks and the Hands of Warlock? No, I want to see both of them. But it's been a while since I've seen both, but they're both really good. I don't have either in my collection, and I should. They're classics. Not They're often overlooked because they're not Nosferatu or Phantom. I think they're, they're, I think they're, they're classics in their own right. And, and well worth seeing. And I think Waxworks recently has had a, a restoration. As they create the image of Gwynplaine, yes, it ends up being an inspiration to Bill Fingers and Bob Kane and Jerry Robinson in creating the Joker a little more than a decade later. And certainly early appearances of the Joker, there's definite similarities in the way the Joker always has that smile very much in the same shape and style as Gwynplaine. Because of the Joker, this movie was elevated in its status and often gets really, again, recognized as an early horror classic, whereas I still feel like the horror elements are downplayed in this movie significantly, especially when compared to the other two films we've talked about. Uh, Paul Lenny, though, Waxworks being one of the main reasons that they hired him, he made The Cat in the Canary in 1927. He did The Chinese Parrot that same year, which was an early Charlie Chan film. It sadly is no longer in existence. It's lost. And then he made The Last Warning right after The Man Who Laughs. And that was his last film before his death. He died on September 2nd, 1929 
at the age of 44 of blood poisoning. Hmm. The Man Who Laughs was his next to last film. And in a short amount of time, he made quite a few classics. You really wonder what he could have done in 1930s Universal. It'd be interesting to see. I think he would have been given Dracula or Frankenstein or the mummy assuredly based on what he had already, the fame he had already achieved up to that point. James Whale might not have been given the opportunity to do Frankenstein, or Bride of Frankenstein. He might not have been given that. I could have changed the landscape of 1930s Universal entirely. Paul Lenny certainly had the cred, you know, to, to take on some big films. One of those things where I guess we'll never know, you know, what, what would have been. Turned out pretty good for the Universal Monsters. It did. I did notice a familiar name in the credits, and it was just production staff. There were like three people, and one of them was Lewis Friedlander. And that sounded familiar to me, so I looked him up. And I love how, you know, people start as first assistant directors, and you see them in different, and then all of a sudden, you know, they're directing. Well, this man under the name Lou Landers went on to direct The Raven in 1935, The Boogeyman Will Get You in 1942, and Return of the Vampire in 1943, among many others. I love it when they get their starts doing behind-the-scenes stuff. I do want to talk about Mary Philbin a little bit. Plays the character of, of Dia. Of course, she's perhaps even better known as the character of Christine from Phantom of the Opera. I did not know some of this stuff about her. So Mary Philbin, there was a little mini documentary on the uh, Flickr Alley Blu-ray that talked about a relationship that she had. And I, I, did, I didn't write the, the person's name down, but it was another actor and essentially different religions. And her parents would not approve of the relationship and the marriage. And so they eventually parted ways. So Mary Philbin only made a couple of films after The Man Who Laughs. Her last film being After the Fog, and she abandoned her film career after that. She entered a life of celibacy and became a recluse. She lived in her in her parents' home and stayed in that home after their death. She never left. She was known to people in the in basically in the neighborhood. She'd go to the store, she'd go to church, sang in the choir, but basically just kept herself away from not just Hollywood, but just from life in general. And she got forgotten. She was rediscovered in the 1960s when people found out Mary Philbin's still alive and she was in Phantom of the Opera. She refused to do interviews, but she would reply to fans. She'd send autographs, pictures, what have you. She just chose to live a very sheltered life. Supposedly, in the late 1970s, she started to suffer from early onset of Alzheimer's. I don't know how accurate that is because she died in 1993. So that'd be a really long time to have Alzheimer's, but I suppose it's possible. She made her first public appearance since 1931 when she made After the Fog. That was her farewell. She didn't appear again until 1988 publicly. And it was at a memorial service for Rudolph Valentino. Now, Rudolph Valentino died in 1926, so I'm going to assume this is some type of special event or something that happened. Following that, 
this is interesting, Carla Lemley, who well known to horror fans, she actually helped her in her later years to kind of, I guess, take care of her and, and help her as the Alzheimer's became a bigger factor of her life. She died on May 7th, 1993 at the age of 91 of pneumonia. Shortly before her death, and while she still had her faculties about her, she found out that the actor, and I wish I had written down his name, that she had loved in the 1920s kept all of her letters and still basically never fell out of love with her all those decades. She kept all of the letters from him. Mm. Very sad that, you know, these two clearly never fell out of love with each other and religion and meddling parents kept the two apart and led her to take a life of celibacy and being a recluse. And I'm going to say probably a little bit of a broken heart and spent the next 60 years of her life essentially sheltered from the rest of the world. Very sad. Kind of a sad ending for her. Apparently, when she was rediscovered in the 60s, they commented that she still looked the same. Essentially, she had aged incredibly well, still had the very childlike voice to go with her very young, girlish demeanor, and just had basically, as I said, sheltered herself from the rest of the world. It sounds like led a very solitary, and I'm going to assume probably a little bit of a sad life especially if you're still pining over this lost love. And then to find out that they were pining up after you, man, talk about lost years in between. Anyway, I thought that was kind of sad, kind of interesting. You know, I got to mention Brandon Hurst, going back to him, he played the character of Barco Fedro. He's got some horror cred because he was in the 1920 version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He was in Hunchback of Notre Dame. He was supporting character in White Zombie in 32. He did a couple of films with Boris Karloff, The Lost Patrol, and House of Rothschild in 34, neither of those horror-related. He had a supporting role in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 41. He was in Ghost of Frankenstein in 42. He was Dr. Geisler in House of Frankenstein in 44. So he is he popped up. He continued to, he was a very busy actor and Horror movies were something he just gravitated towards along with all the other roles. And of course, Duchess Josiana was played by Olga Baklanova, who is better known for her role as Cleopatra in Freaks in 1932. And I read a little interesting thing about Olga Baklanova. So Kevin Brownlow is a writer who is well known for his, his work in silent film documentation. And he wrote an essay that was included with the Blu-ray. And he talked about how he met Olga Baklanova, how it was not a great experience, essentially commenting that there was a dog that was just obnoxious and wouldn't shut up and she wouldn't tell the dog to shut up. He kept having to basically yell over the dog. What he did get, though, was that she did have fond memories of working with Conrad Veidt she did not have fond memories of working with freaks <laughs> in 1932. Beyond that, he says the interview was rather short and that she was just as eccentric in her later years as she was back then. She was a very eccentric actress. So 
had a bit of a reputation and he said that was probably well earned based on his brief altercation with her. I, I mean, we were talking about Conrad Veidt. I forgot to mention that a couple of films he did in the 1940s, Thief of Baghdad in 40. He was also in Casablanca, classic film in 42. He too died at a young age. He died of a heart attack at the age of 50 in 1943. He did not live to see the renaissance of the silent films that he that he w- was in, I think, had he lived into the 1960s uh, when silent films had a bit of a renaissance, we might have been lucky enough to maybe get some interviews with Conrad Veidt to see and have him reflect upon his his some of these early silent films, these classics that he was in. We didn't really get that because he died too young. And he is so good in this. You mentioned earlier how no matter what emotion he's feeling, he's smiling. It looks like he's smiling. But those eyes, let me tell you, you know when he's sad, you know. And I think now that I think about it, there is one shot that is only like his nose up. It stands out because there's a lot of, it's not a close up enough. There's a lot of like wall or whatever behind him above his head that where he's crying. Now that I think about that has to be purposeful. I mean, they must have hidden his smile so they could show his true emotions or whatever. But even when they do show his smile. You take your eyes off the, off the smile and focus on the eyes. Yeah, he was able to project what he was really feeling, whether it was, you know, sadness or despair or happiness at the end of the movie. I mean, again, if you were to cover up that smile, you could have seen it in his eyes when he was reunited with Deus. For me, this movie has just got a lot. And I think I obviously I enjoyed it more than you did. I think partially might have been the print that you watched. Yeah. And so I would be interested to give you the the orchestral version and the better print and have you rewatch it and revisit it and see if it, it impacts your overall opinion. I think, like I said, I doubt that it's going to surpass maybe the thoughts of, of the, the Phantom Carriage. If I had to say which was my favorite of these three, like what, what what's my favorite, least favorite, what have. The Golem is always going to be third for me. I think it would seriously depend on the day of whether I felt Phantom Carriage or Man Who Laughs was the better film. I think it's dependent on what I'm looking for. This is interesting. If you asked me this morning, I was set to tell you the Phantom Carriage. But now as I'm revisiting all these thoughts and, and emotions I had watching The Man Who Laughs, I'm going to go with the man who laughs. I think they're both classics. They're both have something different to offer from different, you know, different countries, different periods of filmmaking, different styles. You know, everyone always gravitates towards Nosferatu and Phantom and Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Once you get past the basics, take the next dive and, and visit some of these other silent films like The Phantom Carriage and The Man Who Laughs. And there's there's a lot of, of great silent films in the horror genre or, or that kind of dip their toes in, in horror that I think that are well worth discovering. And this is a film that, uh, along with the Phantom, Phantom Carriage, gets lots of press. This one doesn't get as much, but it does because of the Joker connection. Get beyond that, and there's a lot to love in this film. Well, that wraps up our uh, movies. Let's take a quick break and come back for new business. The year is 2021, and a new podcast is coming. Created by Bill Mize, the man who brought you the award-winning Bill Watches movies, he now brings you 
Monsters by the Minute, a new storytelling journey into the world of classic horror films. A unique combination of biography, old-time radio, and classic storytelling, the first season of Monsters by the Minute will tell you the story of The Mummy, the 1932 classic that would combine the public's fascination with Egypt with the need for Universal to have another movie for Karloff. This understated occult horror classic would cement Karloff's reputation as the premier horror star of the decade and bring Universal more fame and acclaim as they go three for three in building their horror movie stable. From the screenwriters to the director to the stars, join Bill as he tells you the story of The Mummy from both sides of the camera. Minute by minute, he will tell you the story of Imhotep, the undead priest, as he attempts to be reunited with his long-lost love, the Princess Anxanamon. If you'd like to learn more, please go to monstersbytheminute.com and sign up now to receive up-to-the-minute news about the podcast. Get ready, gentle listeners, for Monsters by the Minute, Season 1, The Mummy. We are back for new business, which includes, among other things, a list of home video coming out during the month of November. Of course, we're airing middle of November, so some of these will have come out. Some will be coming out. Nevertheless, for you collectors, here's what you have to look forward to. On the 10th, we had How to Make a Monster, finally, on Blu-ray from Shout Factory, Brides of Dracula, from Shout Factory, Hammer, 1960. A couple of Clint Eastwood movies, which I wouldn't really consider horror, but Play Misty for me from 1971 is a great thriller. I really like that movie. Yeah, great thriller. Coming out on Kino Lorber Studio Classics. And then I have not seen The Beguiled from 1971. However, it also looks like sort of a mystery thriller, maybe ghost story a little bit. Have you ever seen that? A long time ago, I, I I bought a bunch of Clint Eastwood films a while back, and I think I've got it, but I haven't revisited it. It's like uh, he plays a, is it Civil War? I think so. Soldier and gets kind of trapped up in this house of crazy women. Oh. And there's like, they're all, it's like some of them are attracted to him, but there's like, kind of some madness and craziness going on there. And I wouldn't call it horror, but suspense thriller, again, probably be more accurate. On the 17th, we have Beyond the Door from 1974. And then, Richard, you are going to be getting a stack of Hammer Film DVDs because, yes, I bought Hammer Films, the ultimate collection from Mill Creek. It's got, what, 150 movies, Blu-rays in it or something. The, the selling point for me is that Josh Kennedy's doing a audio commentary for the Gorgon. That, that was the, you know, wafer-thin thing I needed to push me over to buy it. So, <laughs> What a 
an eclectic mix of films that just some oddities that don't have anything to do with the others. It's kind of like if you've gotten everything else on Hammer Blu-ray, yeah, I mean, that's that's just kind of filling in some gaps. And as someone who's just said, I'm not going to do the Hammer Blu-rays because there's no way I could do that without putting my house up for sale at this point because I just I didn't dive into that soon enough. I'm thankful for the DVDs that I will be replacing my off-air recordings of. I, I And I do have some of those movies on DVD now, but yeah, some of them will be will be nice to have. Also, a movie I'm just throwing it in there because I've never heard of it from 1972, So Sweet, So Dead. It's from Code Red. It, it looks like a giallo. It's an Italian film, but looked interesting. If there are any fans out there, that's coming out on the 17th. And then on the 24th, What a Wonderful World We Live In, a box set of William Grief, Grief movies. It's called He Came From the Swamp collection. Yes, okay. Sting of Death, Death Curse of Tartu, The Hooked Generation, The Psychedelic Priest, The Naked Zoo, Mako Jaws of Death, and Whiskey Mountain. Yeah, I saw that. That's an interesting... I, you know, of those movies, I've only seen The Death Curse of Tartu. And let me tell you, I... (laughs) That was on TCM a couple weeks ago, and my mother was actually watching that when I was talking to her on the phone, and I have to say, it looked beautiful. That was not the cut I have seen of that movie. It's everything you would expect a cheap, cheaply made movie on the fly, kind of choppy, out of focus, everything. This TCM version was beautiful. It looked like it looked like a real movie. You know, TCM will sometimes throw those things out there that you're like, why is this movie on TCM? Well, it's because it's a better print. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, they played the 1934 Mexican horror flick, Two Monks, or Dos Monies, or Mon, Mon, yeah, Monies. I have that film courtesy of Juan when I got, oh, the Phantom of the the, the Convent. Monster. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that one that we saw at Monster Bash last year and got the one with subtitles. That movie came with it. Now, the copy I got from Juan was, was a little rough around the edges, but... Not not bad. I was curious to see if the TCM print was an upgrade, and it was. It was still, you know, a little rough. Uh, it wasn't as big of an upgrade as sometimes you see. But again, you're you're dealing with a pretty rare film, so. But it was an, a slight improvement, I would say, over my DVDs. So it is interesting they throw those films out there sometimes. Death Curse of Tartu, though. Man, I don't know that I would need to to have a set of of films from that. I just, I I have Sting of Death that I have not watched yet. Someday I will, and I think I'll call it good in that little genre. I don't don't know that I need to see more. And then this is a sneak preview for, I think, next month. I actually haven't got the date yet, but this is hot off the press. Speaking of Turner versions that look better than what's available. I had heard that if you had HBO, what is it now? HBO, the new HBO. I can't think what it's called, but if you had that, they were showing a version of Curse of Frankenstein that people were swearing up and down was a 4K restoration or something because it looked so crisp and beautiful in no one's DVD. And of course, in the United States, that's never been on Blu-ray. Well, Warner Archive is putting it out on Blu-ray finally, a two-disc set. That's the first time they've put out a two-disc set that does include a 4K restoration of Hammer's Curse of Frankenstein. So that is big news. Again, I don't know the date. I think it was just yesterday I heard about this. 
I've got a DVD of that. That's such a classic film. Boy, that's that's tempting. This is one you'd have to splurge. Yeah, you, I would think. yeah, yeah. I, I've I've been really tempted to upgrade my my copy of Horror of Dracula because I've got a DVD version of that. I know, you know, the I, the upgrade I've heard on that has been is pretty stunning. Plus, it's got the extra little snippets of film. I have just a couple birthdays and anniversaries because we have some that are related to silent films. So I thought that would be good to mention and born on November, or excuse me, you know what I did? I either put the month wrong or I went a little bit into December because I thought we could spread it since it was going to be middle of the month. Anyway, uh, let's say December 5th, of 1890, Fritz Lang was born. We didn't really mention Fritz Lang, but he was big in, we talked about Metropolis. Metropolis, yeah. So he's he was big in silent film. December 8th of 1861, George Millet. Of course, he was a pioneer of almost all of them with his short films of the fantastic. Uh, and then back in November, appropriate, unplanned, call it serendipity, November 11th, 1874, that's when Paul Wagner was born. Excellent. And we had one anniversary of a silent film, November 24th, 1928, not exactly horror, but west of Zanzibar with Lon Chaney Sr., who we talked a little bit about in this very episode. So many of his non-horror films get clumped into that horror thing simply because it's got Lon Chaney and he can be sometimes very horrific with his special effects makeup work. West of Zanzibar is one that sometimes gets, oh, it's a horror movie. Eh, no, it's not. But Lon Chaney's makeup work is always amazing and worth watching whether it's got horror in it or not. So that's it for new business. Other than to hear what is up with you, Richard, in all of your other creative activities. Post Halloween, it has been quiet. I finished up 31 days of Halloween. It was a lot of fun. A lot of positive feedback on, on Facebook, people commenting on the radio shows that I offered up. So I, that was a really good idea. Uh, had a lot of fun with that. I will be getting back to my OTR Wednesday theme. People love old time radio, so I'm going to continue to do that. And we're in the holiday mode. And so I'm, I'm going to go a little lighthearted with some stuff. For November, I'm going to be throwing up a few Thanksgiving-themed shows with classic comedians, I guess, who had their radio characters adapted into feature film. How convoluted is that? <laughs> like Jack Benny, Fibber McGee, and Molly. If you're into old-time radio at all or even dabbled in it, you've heard those names. They made the transfer to, to feature film. Jack Benny certainly did. Fibber McGee and Molly had a series of films uh, in the early 40s. Also, uh, Life of Riley, very popular comedy show. There was a feature film based on that as well, and a TV show. So I'm going to be doing that. And then in December, segue from Thanksgiving right into Christmas, I'm going to be doing Christmas movies that were adapted for old-time radio. There's, there's a lot of them, like Miracle on 34th Street, It's a Wonderful Life, Remember the Night, Holiday Affair, and of course, Christmas Carol and a few others thrown in for good measure. So yeah, that's kind of what I'm focusing on. I, I don't really have anything lined up for Dread Media at the moment. You never know what might inspire me. I don't have anything lined up for uh, the Mimiverse either until probably after the first of the year. Kind of quiet for the next couple of months. 
focusing on this podcast and just kind of some old-time radio stuff and just kind of winding down. I always have that Halloween, post-Halloween, whatever you want to call it, right? It's like, you know, hangover. And so typically, yeah, things are a little quieter in, in November and December. And then, you know, post-holidays, I get fired up and I'll do, I'll, I'll start doing something. I think as we get into 2021, I really, not really horror related, but want to finish up my review of the Dirty Harry film series. I haven't posted part one yet. Part one's sitting. So that's going to happen probably post-holidays. That's what's going on with me. Not a lot. What about you? Same. I mean, post-Halloween where you're, or at least I, you know, I'm trying to get something out every day. It just, it feels like time is standing still now. Same features at ClassicHorrors.club, Mondays, a movie. I think I said last time I kind of stumbled inadvertently into a series on early Roger Corman. Of course, it will already be out, but the most recent one when people listen to this will have been uh, The Last Woman on Earth, which I watched. I don't know. There was some stuff I kind of liked about that. I can't remember if I've seen that one or not. I loved your review on Little Shop of Horrors. I, I almost watched that the other night. We we got a few new channels on uh, the Roku. They keep throwing out some random new stuff. We have Heroes and Icons, which is cool because they do Star Trek every night, like six nights a week. Star Trek, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise, the whole night Star Trek. We also got uh, Shout Factory TV has their own channel, and they play... Basically, anything Shout Factory has the rights to, they play, and random other films periodically. And they were playing Little Shop of Horrors. Mm. Although that particular night, there was audio problems with it. There, The audio was missing. So it was like a silent version of Little Shop of Horrors, which you could probably do, but it would be, it would miss some of the fun in that. that. I do want to watch that based on your review. I was like, yeah, I haven't seen that for so long. I need to see that. I don't have the musical although I have the vinyl soundtrack courtesy of you. So I could listen to that after I watch the original, a bit of a compare and contrast. There you go. Friday's doing the TV terror guide still in 1972 with the, the movies. Most have been available on YouTube. And if I didn't say last time I did uh, make a playlist. So anything I write about will be available uh, on our YouTube channel on a, a special playlist I will say every once in a while there's one that I cannot find, and that was one that should have, if I'm going chronologically, I should have posted it a couple weeks ago, The Eyes of Charles Sand. Uh, However, it was available on DVD, and it arrived yesterday, so I'll probably be doing that in the next couple weeks. I enjoy that series, too. I mean, you're covering films. I've Sometimes I've heard of them, sometimes no clue. The Barbara Eden one that she covered the other day. I know I've seen some early 70s Barbara Eden clips and she was like in that post genie, I need to shed the genie role and do something different. Yeah. And she was very attractive in the early 1970s. And then Wednesdays at DC Comics Guy, still on Freedom Fighters. We had a couple weeks delay and I know I teased you on that last time. Did you happen to read that and see how Marvel Comics got into a series about... Uh, I saw that you did that. I have not read this past week's because of my absence from social media. I'm missing oh. the posts, right? That probably came this week, and I just didn't think to go to the blog. 
I wondered if I was supposed to be collecting a bunch of things to give to you when you were ready to go back on social media. So, well, as we, you know, by the time people hear this, I will be back on and and yes, I will be a backlog and I will probably just go to people's page and just like scan real quick. It's like, okay, did I miss anything? Okay. We'll skip that political post. Okay. We'll skip that rant. Yeah. I'll be playing some catch up. I'm hoping that I didn't miss anything like, Hey, you know, um, we discovered London after midnight and it's available in five minutes on this website. I would hope, hope that somebody would have alerted me to that. That's it for this time. What are we doing next time? We've got the next several months lined up. I don't think, did we talk what we were doing in December last time? Uh, We teased it. The tease that we gave you was really a tease because we're pushing that out a couple of months. If you've had a thought when we were headed, well, you're wrong because now that's going to take a couple of months for us to get there. It is coming up. Uh, I think the only one who knows is Jonathan. Jonathan, if you're listening, we changed our mind and it's coming up a couple of months down the road. No, no, no. Um, Tell it like it is. I've been wanting to do this for, I think I could safely say years now. And again, we push it back. And so February is my birthday. I said, for my birthday, we are going to do that. Wow. That's, that's not how I remember the conversation. <laughs> no, you have been wanting to do it. No, but this one's going to be fun. This, I mean, I like yeah, it. This one came up, you know, we try to do theme months. We tie into like birthdays or anniversaries of death. Barbara Steele was born December 29th. And I just, I thought about, I've got a stack of Barbara Steele films. Hey, that would be fun to do as a theme. I looked up online and we're like, oh, her birthday's coming up. That's how it came about. In honor of her birthday, and Barbara Steele is still with us, we're covering three of her films that probably don't get as much love or attention as some of her other films. I mean, we are not going to be covering Black Sunday, and we're not going to be covering The Pit and the Pendulum. We are going to be covering The Ghost from 1963, Terror Creatures from the Grave, 1965, and She Beast from 1966. However, we're going to be covering the Italian print, which translates to Revenge of the Blood Beast or Il Lago di Santana or something like that is the official print. We're watching the Raro video print, or I, I am, right? I think, were you going to watch that print? I forgot what we decided. Are you watching another print we're going to compare and contrast? I don't remember. I don't either. Anyway, I know that I'm watching the Raro video print. Raro video is a company that not on the level of a Flickr Alley, Kino Lorber, you know, Shout Factory. No, they're not one of those. They're definitely a bit more obscure. I would say they're probably even more obscure than Severin Films. They are definitely deal with Italian genre films. They do some, I think they... I think they dabble in a Western or two. They've got some crime drama and they've got a few horror films. Revenge of the Blood Beast is one of the two Barbara Steele films that they have. And they're probably the best prints that we're going to have available of these. She Beast, I think, tends to pop up in some public domain box sets. I don't know if it's really, truly public domain, but we'll bring you watching the Italian print. And I think that'll probably be a lot different. So that's what's coming up next month taking a look at the films and probably the life and career of Barbara Steele. Yes. And that probably, I'm just guessing, might include some later years work, such as perhaps a TV reboot of Dark Shadows. I I thought that might happen. Yes. So yeah, well, that'll, I think that'll be a lot of fun. 
Does it have anything to do with Christmas? Probably not. And we'll leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) So until then, if you would like to contact us, please give us a call at 616-649-2582. That's 616. Oh, never mind. They know. They know. I was like, I was going to say, I don't have my top hat yet. I just. Yes. Uh, Or email us classichorrors.club at gmail.com. Visit our Facebook group page. Rate us on Apple Podcasts if you have a chance. I think we determined we are on Amazon Music now, so we you just cannot escape us. And especially on YouTube, we hope you'll watch our companion show. We're taking it above and beyond. Like we said, it's not just like the podcast. And this one in particular, I think you're going to enjoy. So I hope you'll check that out. I'm looking forward to what we've got coming up on the YouTube channel and we've talked about, it sounds like it's going to be fun. And that ladies and gentlemen is all on, uh, on my good friend, Jeff here. He, he's the master behind that. I'm just the pretty face that shows up and then he, he takes it and works his magic. So. Well, you have to give it the go ahead. I always ask you, what do you think about this? So. I, I love your idea. So I think everyone will as well. I, okay, this has been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed dipping our, our toes into the, world of silent films so hopefully everyone else did maybe you learned something and uh, maybe we've opened up the door for you to maybe stretch your boundaries a little bit and and give silent films a try I know some people have problems with it reading subtitles or reading title cards find good prints of these films give it a chance you may be surprised so we will go out on the same song we came in in but a different version this is the sound of silence but it is by disturbed from the 2015 album Immortalized, which is available on Apple Music. Rich, you have a connection to this song. Would you like to say anything or not? If, if you have not heard this song, I will simply say that I, this is, you know, Disturbed is not a band you would think could pull off a song like this. Man, they knock it out of the park. Go to YouTube, do a search for, I'm pretty sure it was the, the Conan show where they appeared and did an absolutely amazing live version of this song that needs to be seen. If you haven't heard it, if you haven't seen it, do so. Thank you everybody for listening, for watching, for being part of the club. We'll uh, call this meeting to an end and see you in about a month. Stay safe and take care, everyone. With you again Because a vision softly creeping Left its scenes while I was sleeping And the vision that was planted in my brain Still In restless dreams I walked alone Narrow streets of cobblestone Neath the halo of a street lamp I turned my color to the cold and damp When my eyes were stained
the sound of silence.